Kevin Nation and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and tonight we have not one, but two special guests, one of whom I just get a little bit giddy about. Um, yes, I will own that word, and someone who shares with my giddiness, well, at least I hope he does anyway, otherwise I've left myself well out in the cold. Jim, Chris, how's it going? I am giddy about nothing. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, not really. I get giddy about everything. Actually, yee! Um, I am. I'm. I'm hyper giddy about most things. I'm great, brother. How are you? I'm really, really well. Well, oh, I mean, I went to to Oz Comic Con here in Brisbane, and I was bitterly disappointed. Um, but uh, I think that's probably got more to do with there wasn't a lot to do. But that's a side note altogether. Um, so bitterly disappointed. Bitterly disappointed. I was. Uh, I went last year and it was amazing, but uh, this year, yeah, it was just there was something there just was no energy in the air and everything felt very very mellow. There wasn't a lot just of two, exhibitors. Like, was, like six mates standing around like trading baseball cards or what? <laughs> it was a little bit like that. Oh, well, there were a few more than six mates, but um, yeah, I just I just felt that there wasn't as much to do and it wasn't very exciting. So. Uh, but hey, look, the kids kind of had fun, so that's all that really matters. Um, but uh, yes, um, I was less than impressed. But um, well, other than le- that, less he were less than impressed. Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, okay. Well, then you know what? Let's let's get your impressiveness, you know, thresh- ratio and threshold back up because we have, as you said, some amazing guests coming onto the show tonight. I can't wait to get it started. Should we just get into this? Should we should we should we get into announcements? Talk about what's new on the foundry going on? Uh, look, I think that's a really good plan and we'll do that in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis Roleplay game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? I would love to, because we are talking about the sheer and utter mind-bending horror of the Miskatonic University podcast. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Oh, devoted to all things Call of Cthulhu RPG, MUP is hosted by Keepers John, Dan, Murph, and Chad, who keep the eldritch fires of the great old ones burning. And their most recent episode, I loved, um, episode 181, a podcasting cage match, uh, (laughs) is a a show that they did live from Providence and Necronomicon 2019. Wow. Um, where they actually went head to head in an interview with another uh, Call of Cthulhu podcast. It was a great episode. Um, uh, you got to check it out. Um, especially cool. if you're a fan of any mythos related work, especially the Call of Cthulhu RPG. Mm. And you guys can find this show and many more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. All right. 
Yeah, look, I love that podcast, and I, I'm really starting to get more into Cthulhu lately, mainly because, uh, well, there's a few people that I know that um, have requested that we play Cthulhu. So, uh, and actually, at um, Comic Con yesterday, there was uh, Chaosium had a booth, which was quite surprising. So, it was the only gaming thing there, but. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, Call of Cthulhu is a fine RPG, but you could actually play Cthulhu Mythos quite easily in Genesis. Absolutely. Um, uh, Often using a lot of the things that uh, a lot of the things that are in one of the products that's out there on the Foundry right now that I know we're going to talk about Mm. later on in our show with another one of our special guests. Indeed. Indeed. Alrighty, so let's open up the Foundry Vault and take a look at what's inside. Now, firstly from Fantasy Flight Games is the announcement of the Foundry Spotlight. Hell yes. Uh, so like on Monday, FFG announced their Genesis Foundry Spotlight, uh, which will be a regular recurring article series on their website, which will be used to, as the name suggests, focus on the Foundry and the content that we here at the Forge Podcast are also promoting. Um, now, as I said, this this will be a, a, an article on their website monthly that will focus on one piece of Foundry content. Uh, a member of the FFG RPG team will read through the material, summarize it, and highlight some of the things that they think are particularly great about that particular product. And then they're going to post that Spotlight article directly on the FFG website for the entire world to see. <laughs> and, and realistically, that's an incredible promotional opportunity for, yes. for the author. Uh, to help sell their product. Um, but how are they going to decide which Foundry content gets the spotlight treatment? I'm glad that you asked, uh, because I know I did. <laughs> and, well, they answered it right there on the article. Uh, FFG wants you to send them an email to foundryspotlight at fantasyflightgames.com and tell them what Foundry product you want them to spotlight. Uh, as they say in the article, just put the name of the product in the email subject line uh, and include a brief one to two sentence reason why you want FFG to review that particular article or that particular product. That's right. And then basically on the 15th of each month, they're going to tally up the emails they've gotten. And whatever product gets the most votes will be the product that's featured at the end of the month. So please jump on the drive through RPG, grab those products, um, you know, listen to our podcast for the products that we are suggesting you take a look at and, and get those emails in. Um, and <clears throat> a little bit of self-promotion because I haven't done too much of it here. Yep. I do have my own product, obviously, on the Foundry. Um, my labor of love, uh, the familiar uh, setting. Um, and for those of you who who have played it or if you uh, want to give me a shout out, that would be really <laughs> awesome. I would love to get a featured article on FFG's site. That would be great. Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, so, I've played familiar and absolutely loved it. It's uh yeah, it, it's definitely unique, which is out there uh, in comparison to other items which are out there. And but I absolutely love it. You can have so much fun with it. Uh, so it's it's a not too serious look. I mean, you can, I guess, but it's a not too serious. Oh, look I don't at the know, man. I've, I've already talked to some players that have gone down some serious campaign paths. Oh, with it. really? Wow, awesome! Absolutely, absolutely, cool. watership down style all the way. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting stuff. It's it, it's it's it, but it's it's a it's a niche product. But there's a lot of great products out there. Yep. And so if you guys have one that you really like to recommend and get that get there on that spotlight article, get that email in. Mm. There's a lot of great products. And speaking of products, Huli, and yes. great products on the Foundry. Yes, yes. What's what what is new on the Foundry? 
Uh, now, fir- first up is a new addition to the Foundry, Mega City Magic from Thomas Dini. Basically, this is a supplement that lets you turn your Android game in a full into a full-on Shadowrun game. Uh, it's designed to allow game masters and players to fully and properly incorporate magic into their cyberpunk settings, something that I desperately want to do, uh, specifically yeah. calling out using uh, Madrid magic in android i'll put my tongue back in um it includes new character creation paths that combine seven character heritages uh and three magical approaches uh to uh, to transhumanity uh, 11 new careers to add magic to your cyberpunk game uh fantasy magic focus cybernetics modifications and gear a set of mechanics for summoning spirits and elementals, which is very, very cool, uh, and a heap of GM advice for layering on astral other space uh, onto a sci-fi setting. Uh, it also includes magical threats and adversaries from well-connected occultists to dragons that run global corporations. So, so Shadowrun. Uh, and this is all only for three ninety nine, which is absolute value for money. And if you haven't got it, do it. Yes. Now, we also saw the release of a new setting for Genesis uh, from AJ Panday called The Gods of New Braemar. Um, an original creation of a fantasy setting. It is 59 pages, um, and it covers pretty much all the basics you'd expect. Um, archetypes, careers, talents, adversaries, equipment, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, the production value, to be honest, Huli, um, is a little lackluster. Mm. Um, which I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with. We've talked about that before. Mm. But it is especially surprising considering that the file size of this 60-page PDF is over 330 megs. Wow. And there's only a single piece of hand-drawn art. Um, it's a world map. It looks like it was sketched in pencil. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest is simply laid out. Um, AJ, if you're listening, brother, you really need to compress your file. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and honestly, uh, I mean, this is a pay what you want product, which is good. Um, clearly it's, it's a labor of love from the author, but I mean, I I gotta be upfront and I, you know, I hate saying this, but from my standpoint, you know, Huli, it it just felt a little bit lackluster in terms Mm. of its overall execution. Mm. Um, almost like somebody had a really well fleshed out home game setting that they created in probably another system Mm. and then decided to just kind of thrust it into Genesis, Mm. um, where it, you know, upon a read, it just comes off as fantasy setting number 17. Right. Uh, you know, there's no real unique quirks or concepts that differentiate it from other offerings out there, such as Tyranoth. Mm. Um, and honestly, there was also a decision in the setting to uh, practically recreate existing material in Genesis in the core book when the need wasn't really there. You know, you don't, you don't need to reskin a laborer class, just say, use the laborer career. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, or the archetype, excuse me. Mm. Um, you know, I just didn't find much to differentiate it from other fantasy settings. Mm. Um, so it's there, though. It is pay what you want. Um, and, of course, if you guys, uh, you know, you can obviously, uh, you know, download it you know, for a penny if you wish. Um, and if you feel that, you know, uh, wow, you really like it, you're getting good use out of it, you can always increase your pay after the fact, you know. Um, but honestly, I, I hopefully in time, Mr. Panday will will kind of update this further and really add a lot more oomph and kind of uniqueness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, because clearly it's it's a labor of love from his part. But a little a little under par from my perspective. No, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think when it comes to this sort of stuff, the, the best thing that uh, anyone who might be downloading it um, can do for the author 
is to obviously give them feedback if they're if they're yeah. concerned about it. Let them know. Sort of uh, tell them why that it's not working for them, and some suggestions on how they can improve it. Uh, this is all brand new for a lot of people, I think. So putting a little bit of a positive spin on it for people uh, who are submitting stuff to the Foundry uh, is uh, is a really, really good plan. And lastly, for fans of John Dunn's amazing Hope Prep School series about young heroes in a school for supers, uh, they just dropped Home Prep School Zero uh, Orientation Genesis Edition. Now, as we've seen from Hope Prep Line, here's an example of something not originally written for Genesis, um, where they've clearly taken the time to really transition in and update it properly for the Genesis system. Not to mention offering something truly unique and and unlike any other settings that, that are currently out yeah, there. Absolutely. Now, zero orientation is an entirely uh, it's an entire adventure, um, and it represents the freshman year of of new students at Hope Prep. Uh, it's written to to be played as a, a bit of a standalone, uh, or to introduce players uh, and their starting characters to the Hope Preparatory uh, School setting. Uh, it's filled with maps of the school, player handouts, and a range of NPCs. Um, which will provide everything that uh, the GM needs to run this setting really well. Now, this scenario also provides background uh, and game information on the dreaded alchemical cabal. Uh, and the, um, the I still can't do it as good as you, though, Chris. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the usual quality we've come to expect from from Mister Dunn, uh, and it's only val- it's available. Sorry, for uh, four ninety nine. Uh, a great way to get new players into a great and unique setting. Absolutely. Mm. Awesome sauce. And listen, you guys can find these products and many more great Genesis Foundry content, of course, at uh, drivethroughrpg.com, simply by searching for Genesis Foundry. Indeed. All right, Chris, so before we get into the main topic of tonight's show, do you want to get into some development and rules discussions? Oh, I do. I'm going to be excited. I feel like rolling some dice, my friend, in a segment we like to call Die Casting. Die Casting. The Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. The die casting segment is about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we went through the ins and outs of grouped talents and even went so far as to craft our own home-brewed versions of Improved and Supreme Swift, which, holy, correct me if I'm wrong, our listeners can find right now on our Facebook page, right? That is correct. Yeah, they can also go to um, the website as well, uh, which is ForgeGenesis.com, and they'll be able to find it there as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, tonight, we felt like it was time to return to the discussion of skills with a deep look at a skill related uh, to our last episode on brawn-based archetypes, a skill that, frankly, gets no love from players or GMs, a skill that is, at worst, scorned and laughed at, and at best, leaves players giving a hearty shrug when it's mentioned. And that skill is the unappreciated and underutilized resilience. Indeed. Now, the skill players love to hate, in my opinion, uh, because GMs simply don't know what to do with it, 
um, and players simply don't sort of see the use of it a lot of the time, so they don't necessarily put as much um, experience points into it. Uh, it's a bit of a black sheep on the skill list, uh, which is a shame as it's only one of two non-combat brawn-based skills in the game. Uh, so tonight we're going to crack resilience open and shine a bright light deep inside. Now we're going to talk about the obvious and less obvious ways a good GM should bring resilience into their games, as well as ways that players who've invested in this skill can make some solid suggestions for its use. Now, we may even do a little bit of house ruling of our own to give you some non-rules-as-written ways to spice up resilience in your own games. So, Chris, mm. let's start from the beginning. Let's, let's yeah. set the expectations as we do. Yeah. Um, basics of resilience, guys. For those following along in your storybooks at home, open up your Genesis Core rulebook, page 63. Uh, resilience. Um, I mean, honestly, if you had to sum it up, it's, it's, a, it's the true skill of how hardy you are, mm. um, physically, yep. whether that's overcoming pain, fighting fatigue, struck, shrugging off damaging conditions you're going through. Um, it, it, it's, it's what's, what's weird about resilience is it's kind of like, ultimately it's kind of like a defensive skill. Mm. Exactly. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you think of it like defense against the physical circumstances, uh, <laughs> whether whether you've created those circumstances yourself or whether they were, t- or whether they were thrust upon you, I guess. Uh, yes. You know, you're using them to, to fend off the negative effects of, uh, as the rule book says, of sleep deprivation, uh, poisons and toxins. Uh, and there's quite a few examples around the place in, in relation to that. And we'll get on to those shortly. Um, things like extreme temperatures or in hospitable environments. Uh, there's, yes. there's quite a few things which are out there which resilience does use, which can perhaps be a little bit underutilized. It's also worth noting it is a skill uh, of, of natural healing and recovery, at least mm. as far as the rules as written go in the core rule book. Um, specifically, it's used to recover uh, naturally critical injuries. Yeah. Um, if you have a critical injury and you want to recover it naturally through natural rest and healing, it doesn't just happen. Um, that critical injury will stay with you forever mm. unless you can either get to a healer or naturally rest and make an appropriate resilience check uh, to have it recover. And exactly. Heal. And that that's probably the time that it is used the most. Um, and it's then highly in, uh, up to the GM whether the rest of them come into play. Yeah. Uh, you know, sleep deprivation is not something that, that is seen very often. Um, but as soon as you start talking fantasy settings where you're going from one point to the next and you have to do it on foot, you know, it's not like you just jump in your hover car in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk and, uh, you know, you put it on autopilot and off you go. This is something that you have to, if you have to go from point A to point B in a hurry and you don't have the time, your sleep deprivation is going to be a big thing. Yeah. And it also comes down to one of those things where, you know, as a GM, if your players if your players want to push it, I mean, really push it, mm. um, you can use resilience in some very creative ways. But maybe maybe hopefully that leads us into into the next point of conversation here, which is mm. about using resilience correctly. Yep. Because I think that's probably a lot of the reason that doesn't get the love it does, and the reason it's not used as much as it is, is because the situations that demand its usage are not commonly occurring as they should in people's games. Mm. So. Maybe we can talk about about how I mean, 
Dude, you're a very experienced GM, so let's start there. I mean, as a GM using resilience in your game, how do you use it correctly? Well, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest and say that uh, resilience is something that I find really hard to, to bring in. Um, mm-hmm. because a lot of the time when you're doing, uh, when you're designing adventures, it's not the first thing that comes into your head, but as a GM, you have to dream up the situations where it does come into play and you have to remember to use them because there are going to be players that are going to, whether it be for character reasons, whether it be for story reasons, whether it be for just because they think that it's a skill that their characters have used in other campaigns that they've, they've played, you have to remember to use them. Mm-hmm. because they've spent XP on it. it. It's just like if you're if you've got a talent such as knack for it, which is removing setback die, you want those players to be able to be using that because they've invested XP. Otherwise, they feel that they haven't invested XP. So if you're automatically going, oh, that character has got knack for it, so I'm not going to add any setback dice, you're removing the necessity for them to have spent that XP in the first place. So that's probably the the first and most important thing that you have to consider the player's investment in those skills. And when it comes to resilience, it operates like anything else. And if, uh, if if resilience is not a career skill for them, you know, they can be investing upwards of well and truly over 100 XP into the, into the one skill. So, you know, it's something to consider there. Let's wait. Let's also talk about the inverse of that, though. Okay. Yep. I mean, I mean, let's. And this this actually came up. You know, this reminds me of this reminds me of one of the questions we answered in our last episode. Yes. Um, we we had we had a listener uh, call in about the fact that he had an issue with surprise encounters because yeah. none of his players had cool. Mm, right. Exactly. Um, that no one had invested. Well, okay. So here's the deal. Um, as a GM, you don't you. You shouldn't let your players off the hook for for frequent resilience checks mm-hmm. when it's appropriate or the situations that should call for them strictly because they didn't put points into resilience. Mm-hmm. Okay? <laughs> um, I mean, Hooli's correct. When somebody has, you need to reward that. But beyond that, you need to tacitly encourage them to not ignore this stupid skill. Mm. Um <laughs> you know, it's 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 again. You know, God, none of us, none of us, none of us have any ranks in resilience. Why, why, why are you making this trip through the desert and make these checks? It's like, the, well, they chose the, to go out in the desert. <laughs> exactly. But let, let's but okay, let's talk about that because yep. um, there are I think because I think I think some of the fun we can have is by talking about some of the uncommon ideas. But let's t- let's start with the commons. Mm. What are some of the common adventure tropes that GMs can heavily? rely upon to use resilience checks in regularly absolutely well look i think as i mentioned before you know you've got the the common walking from point a to point b whether that be through you know a trek through the desert um you know a march through the a forced march through the snow uh things like that that you know even going through a forest if you have to go through a jungle it uh, with the humidity in the air that's that's you know it's sapping of, of yeah. your energy. So, uh, you know, any sort of trek from one point to the next in a forced marched format is is definitely worth a resilience check. Now, the key there, though, is consequences. This is actually something that the core rulebook specifically mentions in the resilience section mm-hmm. where they say, you like, should you make your players make a resilience check to cross a mountain range? No. No. Unless... 
it's in the middle of a blizzard. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they're having to do a forced march for without sleep for days at a time in order to beat a raiding party to a helpless village. Mm. Okay. So the, the, the key there is that unusual circumstance and consequences, but these guys are big damn heroes. You know, you don't want to, you know, it's like, Oh, you need to make a walk to the next village through the forest. They, they don't need a resilience check for that. No. Unless it's not a forest. It's a sweltering jungle. Um, filled with poisonous creatures that's going to keep them constantly on edge or <laughs> they have to move without sleep or it's, you know, 42 degrees Celsius in the shade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even if it's something that they choose to do. So if you've said it's going to take four days to go from point A to point B, you know, screen wipe and they're there. Well, if they say, well, no, we really need to be there in two days because we need to talk to this particular um, magister before we go on with the adventure, then you start going, okay, well, that that's a forced march. That is something that you're going to need to, you know, be making survival checks or, in this case, uh, a resilience check, depending on where they're, where, where they're going and how they're doing it. So uh, these are the things that you also should be looking at. Listen to what your players are saying. Give them the, it goes back to the yes and. You know, you're you're providing them with this is what the baseline is and no checks are required at all. And they can go, yep, we're going to do that. And they do it. But if they want to change that, well, yes, you can do that. But there's going to be a consequence. And that consequence would come down to, in this case, a resilience check. Yes, forcing you to make the resilience check. Now, in these examples that we've just talked about, these are things that are either decisions the players have made or you know, enhancements to decisions they've made. There are some other very common adventure tropes GMs can use resilience in that are really the players have no control over and are entirely in the purview of the GM. (laughs) (laughs) Are we talking about venomous creatures, for example? Yes. Yes. Venomous or venomous creatures or enemies with poison weapons, Um, any type of poisonous uh, attribute in, in any type of attack. You can you can throw that in, and guess what, baby? They're gonna be rolling resilience checks. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and that that's something that a lot of people don't actually understand when it comes to exposure. Is that you know we we hear about that that you know a person has died from exposure and whatever else that we hear on the news and things like that. But that is, uh, it doesn't need to be you know blistering um, hot or, or desperately cold weather for people to die from exposure. It's the case that when they're out in the middle of nowhere and they are just getting drenched or, um, you know, they're, they're just in the sort of environment that the human body's not designed to, to go into, yeah, you know, that, that can play a major part and be quite debilitating. It absolutely can. And those types of weather conditions are another thing that GMs can force onto the players. Mm. Um, so, okay, you know, Treks through the desert, marches through the snow, venomous creatures, exposure. Mm-hmm. These are common things that, quite frankly, are, are, are tropes and adventures that, mm. you know, a GM should never forget. Yep. But, but let's be fair. If you include those things in every session. <laughs> yeah. You're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to have some really upset players. Mm. Um, so how can we spice things up? What are some 
uncommon adventure tropes that are true tropes mm. that a GM should never forget to use on occasion that can spice things up and still allow resilience to be rolled in a more regular fashion. I think probably the one that gets not a lot of use, but we see it in all sorts of sci-fi settings. We we see it in uh, you know things like in computer games we're playing with, like Fallout and whatever else. Radiation, you know the 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 old reactor is leaking during during the fight, um, or uh, the engine explodes and then suddenly you know radiation is uh, is cascading throughout the ship. You know, we hear it on Star Trek all the time, um, you know, that the shields are holding back radiation and there's going to be uh, a certain, at a certain time, it'll become lethal. You know, what is that, what is radiation doing? What is, how are they resisting that? It's resilience. Exactly. And any setting that is basically modern or space opera or sci-fi, you can include radiation. Um I mean, you could conceivably include it in a fantasy setting, actually, if they have if they're just around radioactive material. But it, that's that's very athematic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, technically you could, but I mean, yeah, it's it's very very athematic. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Another one I'm a huge fan of that doesn't get used enough, mm-hmm. um, and and really does apply to to any setting. Uh, you really can is the idea of either polluted or toxic environments. Mm. Um, you know, when you get to something like, uh, like, you know, the world of Android that, you know, explored in Shadow of the Beanstalk, um, you know, or any type of, of modern or futuristic or sci-fi setting, pollution or toxic environments can be incredibly common. Yep. Um, in sci-fi and space opera, especially you have alien atmospheres, yep. um, and in hospital, oh, you, you've had to crash land on a, you know, if, if again, to bring up your Star Trek example, you know, it's a demon class planet, you know, <laughs> it's a class M planet. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, uh, or no, cla- wait, class M is a good class one. Class M right? is a good one, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, they have these different classes. They have the class D and the class E, yeah. right? You know, it's yep. like, um, uh, you know, where, where that's really great. But even, even coming into fantasy, you know, I mean, you can really bring that in fairly frequently. Um, you know, whether, whether they're, you know, what a great set piece. They're, they're fighting, you know, uh, around an erupting volcano in mm. the evil wizard's lair, but there's all this ash and smoke they have to deal with. And you can, you know, it's just fantasy radiation when you get down to it. You know, it's, it's you know, all this other stuff. Um, another great one I've seen um, uh, is environmental use. Um, you know, maybe you're in a, in a deep druidic forest or in the depths of a cave and there's fungal spores everywhere. You mm. can't stop coughing, you know. Mm. Um, there's, you know, never never forget the, the, the flexibility of toxic or polluted environments as another way to, to spice up an encounter every other session mm. or two. I mean, there's even, when, it, when you talk about a fantasy setting, how often do we see, and it's a general trope in, in all sorts of fantasy settings, a sewers. How often do people sewers. go into the sewers? And I mean, if, yes. if, you go, if you go back not all that long ago, you know, the River Thames, um, you know, if you fall into the River Thames, chances are you're probably not going to make it out very well because of, of how unclean it is. Um, uh, you know, if you're looking at a you know an 1800s sort of setting. Oh, holy! We holy! We got the Trinity River in Dallas. It's like that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Brisbane it's River like, is much that better. Fish? The, the Trinity. Oh. <laughs> and you touched it. You're not going to eat that, are you? <laughs> So you do you have them in in everyday settings. So it's it's gone from just a 
athletics check to go from one side of the river to the next. You know, it's like, sure, um, you can make it easily across, but you can make a resistance check, you know, or resilience check, sorry. So, uh, you know, you've there are other ways which are, are quite interesting that uh, that you can throw in to, to break that, that norm of, you know, it's clearly just going to be an athletics check or it's clearly going to be a survival check, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. The other one that doesn't get a lot of use, and we don't see a lot of, of information about it um, in the Genesis Core rulebook, nor in Terranoth, nor in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, is disease. Yeah. Now, this is something that, uh, you know, it, it, when it comes to sewers and whatever else, that uh, disease does play a part. But there are some serious, serious side effects to diseases that have long-term consequences that should not be just a single resilience check uh, that may take several resilience checks over several sessions um, or, or months of gameplay uh, that uh, can lead on to other complexities such as passing that disease on to other people. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Be- becoming a carrier and a contagion. And disease isn't commonly used because, honestly, it's not a very sexy thing. No. Um, well, sometimes it's sometimes it can be a sexy thing. But, <laughs> or or not, not a sexy thing in and of itself. It can be the result of a sexy thing. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, but but what I mean by that is it's not very flashy, right? No. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's not very heroic, okay? Mm. The big damn heroes, when they break into some place and you know save a village and and party all night, you know the, you, come, the, you when you when you leave, it's like oh my gosh, yeah, you you've you've caught the flu or you've caught um, you know a, a, a nasty blood parasite or something like that. Mm-hmm. It it's actually it has it has a lot of commonality in Dungeons and Dragons for yep. fantasy players. Yep. But for for heavy narrative heroic role playing, which is kind of where Genesis' seat is, mm-hmm. it's it's not something you really consider. No, um, you know the 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 the. I mean, the heroes in Genesis and such a narrative heavy thing. They're they're the ultimate badasses. They they, they smoke and they never get cancer, right? <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, they drink as much as they want, and never have to worry about liver disease. Um, <laughs> um, it's it's a. Uh, it, it's kind of a big damn heroic thing. So, so subvert some expectations, not frequently, but maybe at least once in a session or once in a, in a campaign, mm. make disease a factor. Mm. Um, and just from a GM standpoint, I dude, you can shock the players. It's like, you know, uh, you know, put up a, put up a bounty notification and it doesn't matter. This could be fantasy. It could be sci-fi. It could be modern or, you know, or, or space opera, you know, put up, you know, like, you know, there's a, there's a town that needs help. Um, they, you know, they're, you know, uh, dozens have died. Um, you know, they're, they're fighting for their lives and they need help. Mm. And the party goes, oh, well, we'll go help. And when they get there, instead of seeing, you know, a town being, um, you know, putting up barricades and defending itself against a, a, a raiding party of goblins or alien interlopers or pirates that are coming to savage them, mm. what they're facing is a plague. Mm. And that's what they're fighting, and that's what's been killing people. And and you can turn an entire party's expectation on its head and be like, "Oh, thank God you're here. Uh, you know, please, we we help us seek a cure. You know, we 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 aren't learned. We please go out and help us. You know, mm. and and it r- can really change the timber of an adventure 
in a very stark way that could leave a, a very fun memory for your players, but at the same time also be a great excuse to introduce them to a communicable disease. Mm. And what better way to motivate players to find a, a resolution to the problem <laughs> by giving them the disease that they're trying to fight? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, you're removing that from, oh, we're, we're trying to do the right thing uh, by helping the, the township. But suddenly, Jeff, the uh, the barbarian, he suddenly picked up why the barbarian would get it. I don't know. I just picked that off the top of my head. But why Jeff, the barbarian, has suddenly um, picked up this uh, heinous disease uh, and why has he got pustules form- forming all over him? We need to really go and do something about that. So uh, if, there's, if there's some issues, if you're doing things on the fly and they're not wanting to engage in the adventure, why they wouldn't want to do that, I don't know. But if they weren't, that would be a really cool way of bringing them into the story and really drawing that out in them. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, these are some common and uncommon ways a GM can bring resilience checks into more common use in their game by just presenting players with the appropriate scenarios. Mm. But, Huli, what about the consequences here? Mm. Because I think the, the other thing the GM has to consider and really plan out ahead of time is what the consequences of all these varied failures on varied resilience checks for varied reasons are. Indeed. So uh, I, I guess when it comes to it, that, that some are easy to, to figure out, like a poison. Uh, and there are, right. uh, there are some really good examples in uh, Terranoth uh, when it comes to that type of thing. Uh, on on how poison work, it, it it's clear it 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 doesn't give many variety much in the way of variety, uh, but it basically says that when it comes to poison, you're making a hard resilience check, and that's pretty much it. But when you when you do that, you've really got to work out well what's going to happen if they fail. Yeah, um, is there and and in the. Uh, in Terranoth, they say that yeah, a failed check will result in three wounds um, being uh, suffered, um, and potentially, if there are more threat or despairs, that they might be forced to make another roll, or they may be forced to take a minor critical hit or a major critical hit. Okay, well, so that's that's easy to figure out, though, and we got those rules laid out. Mm. What about some of the stuff we're building on the fly here? What about the effects of, you know, extreme weather and failing that resilience check? What about failing that resilience check for radiation or pollution or toxic environments? What about failing it for disease? Mm. So these are all things that you're going to need to be, you know, looking at what the consequences are. And if you're writing your own adventure or running it from home, as you say, doing it on the fly, you need to be looking at, uh, you know, what is going to be the failed result? Are there going to be further checks required? Are there going to be um, uh, what's going to happen if, if, if it's a disease? What's going to happen if suddenly you've got this disease? Do you suddenly become a carrier for this disease? How does the disease work? There are a lot of things that you've got to really consider. Um, you know, you can also throw in things like, you know, your, your typical impose a setback dice or even, you know, create that lasting damage. I know that there's, uh, there's a poison in one of the, uh, one of the Age of Rebellion books 
that says that it's a permanent loss to wounds and strain threshold mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and keeps on dropping down over a period of time until such time as the uh, the poison um, is flushed from the system or they get the antidote. Yeah. Another another good way to look at this, if you GMs out there are struggling with what to do, the Cool Rulebook has an excellent set of tools that you can always have at your disposal to have as the results of a failed resilience check. And these tools are four status effects that begin on page 114 mm. of the Core Rulebook. Yeah. And those status effects are disoriented, mm-hmm. staggered, immobilized, and dead. <laughs> <laughs> but in all, in all seriousness, if you think about the progression of a radiation poisoning yeah. or the or the progression of of hypothermia or disease, what what does that mean for the character mechanically? Well, honestly, the low grade version is going to be disoriented. They're yeah. going to be suffering setback dice to their checks. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. If things get really bad, they could become staggered. Mm-hmm. Where they flat out can't perform actions. I mean, this is the weakling crawling on the floor, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's. I mean, you can barely move. You know, from there you can move to flat out immobilization. Mm-hmm. All right, where you're you are immobilized, mm-hmm. and then if things get super bad, you know, it could it, it will could or will kill you. Mm. Um, the duration of these effects for something like radiation or extreme toxic environments or pollution, this could happen very fast. And you know, every time you fail your check you could advance one stage further on that. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, radio, you know, a deep exposure to radiation is a good example for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, four rounds under incredibly intense radiation will kill you. Mm. Okay. Mm. It, it just, it just will. It'll start with disorientation. It'll move to staggering. Then you will become immobilized as you pass out and then you will die. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, 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 but you could stave off that advancement by making successful checks. Um, for something like a failure on disease, um, you know, maybe maybe somebody who's afflicted has to make one of these checks every few days, a resilience mm-hmm. check every few days, maybe every week, okay, depending on how quickly the disease progresses. And again, if they fail the check, they're moved one step deeper down that ongoing status effect track of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, probably a, a, a really good example of, of disease is what we see in uh, The Walking Dead, that mm-hmm. as soon as somebody basically gets bitten, you can survive for a while. Um, and depending on how tough you are, well, you know, they're making resilience checks all the time. But once you're bit, that's pretty much it, unless you're chopping off your, uh, your arm or, or leg or whatever else pretty much straight away, you, yeah. you're going to get it. Uh, and that's a, that's something that you probably should be, if you're going to be installing this sort of thing into your campaigns, you really need to be telling the players this right from the start so that they're not suddenly, oh, but I've spent all this time on this character and now it's been bitten. Well, you know, you, you've set that expectation, as I've, I've said at the start of this section, you've set that expectation that they are going to, uh, you know, this disease is something which will kill your character. Yeah. And you need to be dealing with that. So, you know, how long you can survive without dying. And yes, there are examples of people who've actually managed to get better, but they are very, very few and far between. They, they, so. they are, yes. Now, if, if that idea of, of using the four states of, of immobilizing status effects, mm. of negative status effects, is, is too harsh for you, 
there is another method as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I've used personally, um, and it, it, it added a great deal of dramatic tension to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for disease specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we use the disoriented status effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. After that, as it progressed, and, and this was a very debilitating, it was a flesh-eating disease, mm. um, the player had to roll critical injuries. Mm. Okay? Minimum of 46 or higher. So no matter what you roll, the minimum is going to be 46, mm. um, which is where, you know, I mean, all the critical injuries have their own unique names, um, mm. but uh, 46 is the one where it starts to be like, okay, this is going to either increase the difficulty of doing something specific or it's going to it's it's going to it's going to permanently hinder you in some key way until the critical injury is healed mm. okay and then it just gets worse and worse and worse because as these critical injuries continue to stack as the disease progresses you're adding plus 10 plus 10 plus 10 plus 10 percent till eventually you're gonna die mm. or you're going to have a limb wither away and be not used anymore you know mm. or, you know you'll be crippled okay yep um, you know, blinded. Uh, does that you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So okay. yeah, you've you've certainly got a, a large portion of things which are out there, and the critical hit tables is great. The conditions are amazing that you can use if you're building your own uh, poisons or diseases or or some other effect that is going to cause your players to be using their resilience to stave off the effects. But as players, what do we do as players, Chris? Man, well, as players, you can suggest the use of resilience, Mm. all right? Never forget the ability to do that. This is a system of yes and, Mm. okay? So there are are plenty of ways, you know, keeping keeping within the rules as written. And and I want to bring that up. It's a very important point because in a little bit, we also are going to talk about some ways to maybe house rule some things Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, to use resilience in some more creative ways. But, you know, keeping things within the raw, within the rules as written. um, Honestly, when when you're making one of these checks, come up with some creative ways to use your results. That's the other key thing. Mm. And I love that the, where, where my roots are with the Star Wars RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, that system actually provides some some further clarification and interesting suggestions on how you can be spending success and advantage and triumph when you're making a resilience check. Mm. Because that's the other thing, too, is it's not just pass-fail in this system. Don't treat resilience checks that way as well. Mm. From a player's standpoint, you know, yeah, the GM's like, okay, yeah, he failed or he passed, so this thing bad thing happens or doesn't happen. From your perspective, mm. you know, you need to be interpreting your positive results appropriately. Mm. Um you know, if you if you generate multiple successes, you know you can make an argument. Well, look, GM, I just generated five successes. Do do I need to make another check next round, or can I carry this over? Because another common thing we see with this system is that more successes can often equate to um, a longer amount of time mm. uh, in terms of to- of time based skill checks. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, when you when you roll advantage, it's like okay, uh, the next check I make, GM, can I make that easier on myself? Mm. Can I can I reduce difficulty, or can I give myself a boost die on the next check? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, for a triumph, maybe I can I can if I if I've already suffered debilitating conditions, maybe I can just kick them off completely. Mm. Okay, mm. Um, none of these suggestions stop the 
adverse condition that I'm continually having to roll against, mm-hmm. but they make it either easier for me mm-hmm. um, in some form or fashion um, or, or remove some of the impact that I've already suffered. Mm. In in a kind of a way, uh, and this this may be a stretch, but in a kind of a way, diseases become a skill challenge for a single PC to do yeah. over a period of time. Absolutely. So you know, it it may be a case that you need to make five successes or ten successes. Um, over the course of however long that it uh, that this lasts, and you make one of these checks per day, so yeah. that's that's a different way of of looking at doing a disease or a poison or something like that, and do it as a skill challenge instead. Yeah, you talk about skill challenges, right? Mm, yeah. Well, that that is at least for right now a house rule. Since we're getting into that, I think we probably have a couple of interesting suggestions for some GMs and players who really want to pump resilience up into high territory and make it a much more useful skill. Mm. Um, These are a couple ways that I can't speak to you, Huli, but I know uh, the things that we're going to be talking about, uh, at least the first two, Mm. um, I have done in my games uh, sometimes and sometimes not. But what we're going to present you with are very balanced solutions that we found to work, at least in our games at home. Yeah, absolutely. So our first one would be, uh, it's a bit of a modification to the the ruling that uh, that we see for natural healing. Uh-huh. But it's certainly something that can get your PCs up quicker than, uh, you know, as you said before, they are big damn heroes. Yes. So let them heal a little bit quicker. You know, we if we see Arnie get um, injured in uh, in combat in a movie, we don't sort of see him having to rest up for a week, uh, unless it's extreme circumstances. You know, from major injuries there, and they don't always have a, a medico on hand to fix up the problem. So, if we want to really sort of bolster that up a little bit more and make critical injuries not necessarily as uh, as big a problem as as what they can seem uh, in the longer term, you can can roll that into a single resilience check at the difficulty of the critical injury. Um, uh, you know, within a shorter period of time. Generally speaking, as I said before, with a with a night's natural rest instead of one piddly uh, wound healed, you would roll the resistance uh, resilience. Sorry, um, with the same difficulty as the critical wound uh, healing, uh, which is on table one six dash eleven, which is on page one hundred and sixteen of the core rulebook. Um, if your current wounds um, equal or or less than half your threshold. Uh, it's one purple. Current wounds greater than half your threshold, average for two purple. Uh, and the current uh, exceeds, uh, your current wounds exceed the threshold and becomes a hard. So you heal a number of wounds equal to your uncancelled successes uh, on the roll to a minimum of a one, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, this also means that it's harder to heal more naturally if you're really beaten up, which it is. Uh, wound effects on the body are going to be cumulative after all. This is true. And and this is the thing I've I've found extreme success with in fantasy settings. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, and, and this is not this has been another common com- player complaint as well. You know, if if you don't have access to painkillers, mm. okay, or whatever or whatever their equivalent is in your setting, I mean you're hosed. I mean, I mean, even even a character with five hundred earned XP, they're healing one wound a night. Mm. That's it. Mm. Okay. And so 
if I've got a threshold of 22 and I'm actually at my threshold or above my threshold, I mean, what? That's that's a month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's a month to heal. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't happen very often, but it, it's one of those things that this can really bring resilience to the forefront. And, you know, whereas, as Huli said, that the core rules only allow for resilience and healing when you're trying to heal a critical injury naturally, and it takes like one week of rest, I think, mm, yeah. you can, as you said, speed that up. And you can also allow them to make these rolls nightly to heal their wounds faster. Mm. You know, at, as, as you said, Huli, depending on, on, on where they are with their wounds mm. in relation to their threshold. Yeah. If people find it a hard pill to swallow, because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who like to stick to the rules as written because the, you know, the expectations are set right from the start when as soon as they buy the book, is then fine. Flip a story point, you know, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, as rules as written, the story points break the rules. So say, okay, well, you're going to be resting up for a night. Spin a story point, and uh, I'll allow this to happen. It certainly uh-huh. makes it a much easier pill for for them to swallow. Then, uh, rather than going through the the drama of, well, but the rules say this. Well, sure, if you want to run a boring campaign, that's fine. But you know, <laughs> uh, but look, in defence of that, it may be a case that you want them to have the downside for a month. You want the the time to pass because you want some sort of an event to occur when they go once they've recovered from their injuries and they go back to the town. Sure, sure, you know, sure. sure stuff like that. But if you wanting the action to keep on moving and the story to constantly be progressing, and you want and you want to showcase resilience a little more, exactly right. <laughs> that this is basically what you would do. So this is our, our first suggested house rule is to allow for resilience rolling to heal faster naturally. Mm. Now, the second one that I'm a huge fan of, and it's it's even it's it, it's even almost kind of pseudo raw, but it's not raw, yep. is allow resilience to take the place of athletics under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with uh, what I would term feats of endurance. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, no, a resilience check should not allow you to break open a steel door with your bare hands <laughs> or to lift a heavy rock. That's athletics, okay? Yeah, yeah. But if you're climbing a mountain, okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, you know, or, 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 or hanging from your fingertips by a narrow ledge, I mean, yeah, that could be athletics, um, but why not resilience? Mm. I mean, as any rock climber can tell you, it, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, your strength's important, but it's about your endurance more than anything else. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and speaking on that, a foot race could easily be made a check, uh, for a foot race could easily be made with a resilience check, especially if it's a marathon. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, if it was a marathon, I, I, I mean, I would straight up be like, yeah, no, yeah, I don't need athletics. I need resilience for yeah, you. Exactly right. Um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that as you're thinking about, you know, feats of brawny goodness mm. that are, you know, where, where you could reasonably substitute resilience, mm. allow it. 
Well, look, one thing, just 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 thinking out loud here, that one of the things that I immediately think of is is to try to bring in a skill challenge because I love that mechanism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you've got if you're a player and you're you know you're going from one end to a dungeon to the next or something like that, or or you're trying to make your way through. Why not suggest to your GM, well, maybe the, there was a portcullis that uh, was there um, and I needed to hold it open to allow my friends to get through. Can I make a resilience check? That's a brilliant way of doing it because it is a feat of endurance to be able to hold up this massive thing. It's not a matter of, of lifting it for the first place. It's a matter of that you've, you've given that description that you're holding it up in this dramatic fashion, you know, screaming out like, like Arnie or whatever else, and you do it much better than me. But the, the, the fact is, is that you're suggesting that you're adding that narrative to the storyline that uh, would, for me, that would be definitely a resilience check. No problem at all. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's some suggestions as far as house ruling. Final thoughts? Look, I, I can't stipulate enough about these diseases because I know that we've basically, we've talking about, uh, talking about, we've spoken about uh, diseases a lot during this particular thing because it, it is something that doesn't come up very often and I think that it's a unique thing that you need to really look at. Um, so realistically, just go back to what we've, we've already spoken about, you know, what, what effects this has on the affected character, what are some of the secondary effects that there's going to have, you know, you might want to be considering setback dies, permanent loss of strain injury, um, you know, permanent loss of wounds, uh, and those conditions that we've, we've mentioned to you as well. And look, there are probably going to be other conditions as well. Uh, you mentioned blindness before. Uh, which yeah, could, as, um, yeah, and so it's on the crit table. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, so you know, think, look at the crit table as a bit of an idea of what sort of things can go horribly, horribly wrong. Um, and uh, ooh, yeah, ooh, 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 and you want to know why this system is even so much more awesome than we already know it to be? Yes, why? How easy should it be to heal a disease, or how easy should the resilience check be to overcome a disease? Yeah. Start at the effect. Yes. Okay, so if the if the effect of the disease the character is currently experiencing mm-hmm. equates to a crit on that crit chart, yep. Use the difficulty for the crit. Exactly. Exactly. Use the difficulty for the crit. Mm. Okay. That's also another reason that we we also like suggesting you know looking at the crit chart for effects because at that point you have a balanced. Uh, difficulty tied to that severity of effect, a difficulty to overcome it, a difficulty to resist it, or a difficulty to heal it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good way to finish that off. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Uh, now that we've talking about that, I think we should talk in about something else. Um, <laughs> I think, Mr. Hooley, it's time that we should pump the bellows and heat things up as we open the furnace doors and talking to somebody I cannot wait to talk to. I know. The Furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. And tonight we're going to expand our horizons with a topic that is vastly important. 
not just for those creating content for the Genesis Foundry, of course, but for any GM or writer who is crafting exciting things to simply run on their own tables. And this is strong and memorable adventure seeds and set pieces. That's right. Now, most GMs and authors think about the complexities of module creation and adventure crafting, but taking that learning and execution to a more basic and, and frankly, more versatile and useful level is what we are going to be talking about tonight. We are talking about the creation of pre-made, pre-written, well-designed adventure seeds for sessions and set pieces for player encounters. Indeed. Now, creating the skeleton or inspiration for solid adventures, as well as the ins and outs of specific memorable encounters serve to provide amazing content in an RPG supplement. But it also can hone your adventures at the home game level, giving the GM a stable or of ready-to-go ideas that will excite their players, cut down prep time, and let GMs be ready to be awesome uh, at a moment's notice. Even on the Diceball podcast, I created an episodic adventure chart to address this issue and help GMs to make exciting scenarios and stories for their players. But it's more than just a chart. Uh, There are some very helpful hints, uh, tips and tricks that can help you make the most of your gaming time. And to that end, we thought it best to bring onto the show a very special guest to help us tackle this conundrum of epic proportions, a true expert, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Mm. Joining us tonight is a man who is a literal living legend in the RPG industry, a freelance writer and cartographer who's been working since the early 90s. He has been a tour de force whose credits we cannot begin to do justice to. He has been a contributing author and a cartographer on scores of RPG and minis products for multiple publishers, including work on D&D, Savage Worlds, Call of Cthulhu, D20 Modern, Numenera, every version of a Star Wars RPG that has ever been produced, from West End Games to Wizards of the Coast to Fantasy Flight Games, and of course, Genesis. Having worked on roughly 30 published products for Fantasy Flight Games, from a Genesis standpoint, not only was he a contributing author to the core rulebook, but also for Shadow of the Beanstalk and the forthcoming Expanded Player's Guide and Keyforge campaign setting. And, let's not forget, was one of the launch authors for the Genesis Foundry, contributing the Android Adventure module Power Play and the brilliant Instant Adversaries. He's also published Electrum and Mithril best-selling D&D adventures for the DMs Guild. He has been a guest of mine on the Order 66 podcast a total of 17 times, has been one of our guests of honor at Gamer Nation Con, a brilliant author, perhaps most lauded for his exceptional work in crafting adventures. He is also the recipient of numerous RPG industry design and product award nominations and wins. We are proud to welcome, for the first time, to the Forge podcast, our friend, Mr. Sterling Hershey. Sterling, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks for uh, having me on. It's always fun to talk to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sterling, we are eager to leverage your expertise to discuss the topic of Adventure Seed and set piece creation. But for those Forge podcast listeners and Genesis fans who may be meeting you for the first time, if it's okay, we'd love to spend just a couple minutes kind of getting to know you a bit better. Okay. Cool. All right, so <laughs> so now we've we've discussed your um, gaming experience uh, in uh, what Chris was saying before, uh, which is, is quite vast to say the least. 
So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your gaming history and, and work and where it all started and, and things like that? Um, sure. Um, so I guess from a freelance, well, from a gaming standpoint, I you know started playing D and D very very late seventies. Picked up um, and played you know a number other D other uh, RPGs through the years um, through that time. But then um, got into the Star Wars RPG. Uh, played a little bit in high school, but then really got into it more in uh, in college when some friends decided that I needed to be running it. <laughs> and um, so. <laughs> Um, from a freelance standpoint, um, uh, I got started writing RPGA modules uh, back when RPGA was around. Um, I, re- I wrote um, a couple of Star Wars uh, adventures for them, uh, Milk Run and Defection. And uh, Milk Run got picked up and run in there. Well, got picked up for the Gen Con adventure uh, that following year, uh, which meant it was the official RPGA Star Wars adventure. And... Uh, I ran it like six or seven times. Um, it, it's one of one of many people running it, um, and then that got picked up and run in Polyhedron Magazine, which was the uh, the RPGs they call it a newsine, I think, but basically a small magazine. Right. And in the meantime, I'd already sent a sent a um, proposal into Weston Games to do a a book on Rebel bases, and uh, uh, I was studying to be an architect at the time, and. Uh, Thought that'd be fun to do, and they um, said thank you. Uh, we'll hold on to this, uh, but not right now. And then after, but I, but I met some of them at Gen Con, um, and uh, including the line editor um, Bill Smith, and he then uh, well after after it was published in RPG in the RPGA magazine, um, and I sent I was trying to get some writers guidelines from them again because I was. Uh, I didn't have them with me. I was out of the country. And uh, they said, well, uh, yeah, we can send them to you, but uh, we also have a proposal for you, which turned into uh, my first product, uh, Flashpoint Brack Sector. Mm. So from there, I, uh, I, they liked what I was doing. They were very, very helpful in the early uh, my early days. Um, and uh, I became semi-regular with them, and then they went bankrupt. Um, and But... Uh, after that, uh, had a little bit of pause while uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast didn't originally do there. Didn't use freelancers early on. They right. did pretty much it all in, all of it in-house. But Star Wars Gamer Magazine came along, and then I got another shot at doing some things with them. And then, um, you know, again, once I sort of... Well, then the minis game came along, and uh, so there was some... I wrote a lot of minis adventure, minis scenarios, and mm. then a lot of... Uh, that led into stuff with Saga Edition being being in the right place at the right time, and then of course Fancy mm-hmm. Flight, um, and then there was D. I did write some D and D in there too. I wrote uh, a number of Fourth Edition uh, adventures and uh, for for a dungeon and some articles for Dragon, usually based around like history, past history uh, of earlier D and D products or stories rather, not the products themselves. Wow. <laughs> My favorite anecdote that you told me once is a lot of people don't know that uh, you went to was it was it college you went to college with Jim Butcher? Um, uh, no, actually went to high school. Went to high school. You went to high school with Jim Butcher. Yeah. Um, the, the most of our listeners probably know him as the author of the Dresden Files, mm. among many other things. And you guys used to play Cthulhu RPGs together. <laughs> uh, so in 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 high school it would have been D and D and um, uh, Warhammer Fantasy. And uh, later on in the early two thousands. Uh, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, 
I was running up the Cthulhu game that we played in. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's it's always been very surreal to see to see his uh, just to see his books and how how his career has gone uh, over the years. Um, especially the first time finding his books on like the sh- store shelves in in Barnes and Noble, and uh, <laughs> I was like, wait a second, picked that picked. It. I was like, is that really? I picked it up and looked at the picture, and sure it was. Sure enough, it was. I mean, they made a TV series. It only lasted a season, but they made a TV series. <laughs> People don't remember that um, with Paul Blackthorne. It was good. Yep. Um, yep. Oh, that's yep. absolutely hilarious. So, okay, you've been writing for decades, okay? You've been playing twice as long. Because this is Genesis, and, and that's really the focus of this particular show, and obviously as as one of the you know initial authors who really helped contribute not just to the Genesis system and help make it what it is, but you know as one of the original authors who also helped contribute to the first iteration of the narrative dice system with Star Wars, you know, you more than many others are very close to this system. And considering that, with your RPG experience, what is your first love of Genesis? And what I mean is, in other words, what setting or theme do you most enjoy in this system when you, you get the chance to run or play? You know, it's kind of funny because um, I ran a fair amount of Terranoth back when it was back during the playtest of that stuff. I didn't actually work on the books. And that was interesting just because I don't run a lot of other fantasy besides D&D. But I think, you know, as far as setting is concerned, I I really like Android. And uh, really, you know, I wasn't into it very much uh, before sort of the opportunity came about to do to work on the book. Uh, You know, my wife had had the Android card game and and I'd seen the. the worlds of Android book and that sort of thing, but once I, you know, once I really got into the, into sort of what they were doing with the with their history and so forth and their their setting, I really liked that sort of harder sci-fi setting. So I find that one very interesting. When I'm looking through, you know, through the different themes and so forth, um, I haven't really had a chance to run a lot of of, of different of the different themes. Uh, I did work on the tones and. Um, uh, but so it was fun, like at, uh, at 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 Gen Con, to play in in Phil's um, Starcana game, just to see his take mm-hmm. on the on the sort of sci-fi magic kind of setting. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I did. I have made a, a couple of settings that I haven't really done anything with, just more more out of uh, experimentation, um, not spending a ton of time on them, but just working through the details and and and. Uh, they were also, you know, sci-fi related. I guess I tend to go towards the sci-fi side of things. Um, well, it's not as though you don't have much in the way of experience in that realm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that's, although, although I, I will have to say that um, the, uh, the working with the the KeyForge setting, which of course I can't talk about, hmm. that was a lot of fun. Because that was, and you've seen the KeyForge card game, so it's a you know the, you can you, if you've seen the card game, you know the all these different wild factions and and how do they work, how do they operate together, how the, how does that work, and then they've also got fiction already available with the in the like rule books and things mm-hmm. like that. So getting in and work, that was I do like these sort of weird settings. Um, so like uh, Numenera um, or Gamma World, um, yeah. I, I I have a lot of fun with those kind of things because I. For whatever reason, I feel like I've got a lot more. If I get a, weird, a fun idea just at that moment, I can run with it, and it'll you know it's a weird setting, so these odd things can happen. Uh, just 
especially the new era. And so uh, Keyforge feels like that to me in many ways. So I'll mm-hmm. look forward to, uh, yeah, running that at some conventions. Mm. <laughs> it's certainly wacky. <laughs> there is no two ways about that. I am so excited. I am so excited for Keyforge. It's gonna be. It's gonna be weird. Um, we were talking about on a recent episode of, of this show that my my nine year old daughter um, actually asked me if she if she came home from school saying that the she, friends at school were playing this game called Keyforge. She wanted to play, and I'm like, "You're kidding! Awesome, <laughs> Daddy has a starter set. Come on!" <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Keyforge. We actually gave uh, a starter set to to um, some of the relatives that uh, some kids that. Uh, we, we, and they'd never seen it before and started playing it and then immediately they're like oh, oh yeah we want to keep playing this <laughs> so that was fun it, it, just to be able to sort of uh, sort of just out of the blue give it to them and say hey here's a fun game mm. alright so Sterling we'd very much like to dive into our uh, to the topic at hand um, though we've got a few um, you know outline topics for discussion um, we'd, uh, we'd very much like to you know keep it a bit of a free form conversation uh, going where we may on this topic of uh, Adventure Seed and set uh, piece crafting. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds good. Awesome. Excellent. So, all right. Before we, we get into this discussion, uh, holy, a lot of our listeners may be wondering, you know, Adventure Seeds, set pieces, mm. what are we talking about? Indeed. <laughs> so, basically, when it comes to, you know, Adventure Seeds and, and, and set pieces... We see a lot of these in, uh, especially uh, more so uh, with Legend of the Five Rings that I found. Yeah. Um, but we also do see them in in Star Wars uh, adventures uh, and supplements as well. Um, and it's the rise of the popularity of, of these adventure seeds in published products, which it's kind of a a way to drop. Uh, without giving too much information so that the GM has a lot more uh, scope to play with, that they can just dump these straight into their adventures uh, and start playing with a key idea of this is where it starts, this is the body of the adventure, and this is how it can resolve. So, yeah, that that's basically what we talk about when we talk about adventure seeds. But what about set pieces, Chris? Well, set pieces are, are basically generic pre-designed encounters. And, and often, if we look at especially what, what the, the styles of adventure seeds that Fantasy Flight has published in its various products, they will not always, but sometimes often include a, a set piece uh, mm. or two as a part of that sort of key encounters or encapsulated encounters that are kind of a subset of an adventure seed. Mm. Um, and, you know, th- there is that. But, I, you know, when we, we talk about this difference, you know, Huli, between this we're we're seeing more and more adventure seeds and sterling i'd be very interested to get your your take on your take on this because there there are adventure seeds and there are modules full adventure modules and there there seem to be two very different things for two very different needs i mean you know a full on adventure module i mean you know you can just it's got it's got everything you need there's no work you need to do outside of prepping yourself and reading it but an adventure seed has a, a very different place. It, it's designed to sort of, I don't know, give the bones of, mm. of an adventure idea, um, maybe even for a session instead of an, an entire campaign uh, or many multiple sessions, which uh, a module can uh, encompass. Yes, um, <clears throat> yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so these adventure seeds, uh, there's a couple of things we're doing 
we often do with those. One is that, yeah, it's an, an idea for an adventure, um, but specifically in, in a lot of the FFG products, we're trying to highlight something uh, specific about maybe a location or an idea, uh, but but usually like plant like specific planets might have adventure seeds, um, and so we're, we'll try and highlight whatever makes that planet special or 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 a feature that would be fun to fun to have an adventure in. Uh, so there's sort of that that sort of demonstration aspect to it, but then there's also of course coming up with uh, enough information that you, that the GM can make uh, make an adventure or at the very least, a session out of that particular idea. And then, you know, we'll give the um, general idea of it. We'll say, you know, here, you know, here's location, here are the things that should happen. Um, and, but we'll leave a lot open to the, uh, to the game master to adapt to, to their own game. Um, and that's one thing, you know, everyone does is, is, you know, Take it. Take ideas you get from one adventure, and maybe use them. And if you don't use the whole adventure, you use part of this idea in your own adventure. So this, the 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 seeds work in that way very well. Very aptly named. It's a seed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, ha- having it grow into uh, various things. So you know, we there there are a lot of podcasts that have been done around adventure design. Um, for Pete's sake, Sterling, we even had you on the Order 66 podcast a very long time ago uh, where uh, Sam Witwer also joined us. I don't know if you re- even recall that. And we built oh, yeah. it live on the air. Yeah, uh, I remember. Uh, it was a really fun episode. And, you know, building a long-term adventure and writing a full module, I mean, these are, these are big topics that I know we're going to get into detail on. But when we talk about especially content that we're seeing for the Foundry, and people are are developing their their own Genesis materials and their own Genesis settings. Going whole hog with a module is always a wise idea, and we've seen that there tends to be a very strong correlation between the success of custom settings that are uh, followed very quickly or or coterminously by a a module, so people can run it immediately. But including set pieces in your setting creation seems to be a a good little uh, stopgap measure to, as you said, what would you say, impart certain themes or locations or very specific ideas um, without having to have a fully prescribed module or adventure. Yeah, it's a good way to to sell different ideas about your whatever whatever it is that makes your. Um, setting special or interesting or fun um yeah and and when you, especially if you don't have the work and now these being pdfs word count may or may not be a as big of an issue for people but whether <laughs> it's whether it's a word count or just time to develop um these items but since they're all role-playing games it's good to have a lot of uh, any 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 way you can get more adventure or encounter ideas into a product the better it tends to be in my opinion mm. Um, so like I've had people tell me, you know, it's stuff that I've written. They're like, Oh, I get so many ideas just out of reading this one paragraph. And that's, <laughs> that's the idea is to, to, um, you know, feed in, uh, all these potential, show, show the potential of what could happen in the game. I mean, how many times have you come across someone who said, I've read a line and they've blown it up, um, just from that one line of text from some piece of piece of fluff somewhere, to be this huge overarching campaign. 
or the st- or you know story prompts that people use for some fiction writing or mm. for, for or for writing exercises. Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy. Yeah, because that's something that that I've noticed, especially with uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, is that it has it doesn't have a lot of adventure scenes. There's an entire section in the back which I believe that that uh, friend of the podcast Keith Capel wrote. Um, that talks about you know creating those uh, those adventures using that sort of the hook, uh, the twist and and uh, the resolution sort of method. But there's a lot. Yeah, of, the advent- they've got an adventure builder in the back. Mm, yeah. But there's a lot of sections that are in the book spread throughout, which sort of tells a little bit about the world um, or a particular character and whatever else. So it's not just you don't have to have a structured sort of format. I guess uh, it can be. Uh, just a here's a snippet of something that's going on in the world just to give that idea and and players and gms can then start to really look at what the ins and outs of that and that might generate some ideas and then obviously go into they can research that area and and expand it out well and and, you know i know i mentioned locations but i mean another way of another thing to definitely look at or or different uh, social or combat situations or specific characters. Uh, if you want to highlight a specific NPC and give, give people an idea of, hey, how, what, the, what does this person do? How do they operate? An adventure, uh, you know, an adventure seed can, can help do that. Mm. But uh, as you said, it doesn't have to be a formal, here's an adventure idea. Here's what you can do with the ad- idea. It can just be the description of the NPC might have some very interesting things written into it, hopefully, that, and and some of them might be open ended enough that to let to let um, the GM look at it and go, hey, okay, I can take this idea that this character does this one certain thing, and how does that how would that interact with my my players, yeah. and then go from there. Yeah. Okay, so this this brings up a, a really good question, and and when we talk about the process of adventure seed creations, where does a writer start, and how how deep do you ultimately want to get in an adventure seed? So, I mean, for, so two questions. First thing is, is where do you start? And what's your end goal here? What's, what's that dividing line between a seed and a, a mini module, basically? <laughs> yeah, and uh, that can be kind of fun to work out. When when does an encounter become, when does a seed become an encounter or an adventure or a module or full-on? You know, module mm-hmm. and there's a lot of times where you might get an idea for a, a full-on entire uh, module but if you try and boil it down into a couple of paragraphs it th- doesn't really there's not enough information really there so then you got to kind of pick a, a couple of highlighted or areas that you can focus on in terms of where do you start um i mean they're so short that outlining uh, i'm not sure i do that exactly although i guess that's I guess that's not quite true. When 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 I think of outline, I think of something much sort of more detailed. But when we are developing uh, outlines and things uh, for products with with Fancy Flight, because that's one of the first steps we often have to do. Yeah. You know, we can at least write a few sentences about, "Hey, uh, this is the the really basic idea." And as far as how deep do you go? Uh, if it's a adventure seed, you're probably not putting in things like really encounter specific mechanics mm-hmm. you might mention you know okay you might mention if you're having a, a, a i don't know um if you're having a fight over 
a uh, ravine, for instance, um, or or maybe maybe the ravine is flooding. Okay, you can get away with saying, "Hey, the flood the flood waters come through at this one point," and you're not, but you're not getting in there and saying, "You know, the, uh, here are the skill checks you have to do to avoid the flood. <laughs> here's the uh, here's the damage the flood does." You kind of leave those details to the GM. Uh, you might mention a little bit. Depends on you know if you're trying to if you're trying to make a seed that's an example of a mechanic, then maybe you would include those. Yeah. But for the most part, um, you don't get generally too deep into the actual mechanics of it. You want to keep more in more on the on the the, the story overall story level. Because mm. it's certainly more sort of high level more than it is to to get into the minutiae of the of the situation that you're going to be dealing with. Yes. Mm. Yeah, because usually you don't have the, the space to put it in in the first place. And second place, that's not really the – if you're going to do that, you may as well go write the encounter or the adventure. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know that when I did uh, the uh, episodic adventure chart, I've uh, the sort of suggestion that I've always had is that you just do a sentence. You don't do anything more than that. And that's just mm-hmm. to give you a bit of a, an idea of where you're going to go. Um, so, you know, doing any more than that, as you say, you might as well be starting to, you know, go down the path of, of writing the entire adventure. Yeah. And that goes back to that, that, um, uh, writing prompt idea we were talking about a little bit ago. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to think about it. And so, I mean, so, okay, then let's talk about that content. What, you know, for, for somebody who's never written before and whether they're looking to create adventure seeds in a, a product that they plan to publish or whether they're simply, for quite frankly, being a smart GM, because I'm going to be perfectly blunt, having these kinds of adventure seeds in your, you know, in your game Bible or your campaign notebook mm. for yourself, for your own game GMs out there is a, a piece of incredible wisdom that will serve you. So you, you will pull things out of your butt that you wrote years ago when you're stumped for ideas and need something. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in either of those scenarios, what content should you include with that level of detail? I mean, story beats, critical decision points, outcomes. What's what's the best case scenario look like? What's the what's the what's the the good use case basically? One thing is also good about writing these seeds is if you are creating a brand new uh, setting, um, it's also a great way for you to brainstorm ideas for how else can what else can your setting do? How far can it go? What's, um, you know, it, it makes you work through um, different, maybe different uh, scenarios uh, when you start looking at, at your different uh, uh, settings or your different uh, characters or settings or, or mechanics. Um, so in terms of what it sh- should include, it should, uh, story beats, story beats is an interesting thing, but just because I don't, Whenever I hear the term story beat, it's just not a term that I've ever really used that much of. I know what the people mean by it, and I know writers, you know, for for TV shows or whatever, hmm. uh, get into doing that. That's not how I tend to think of them. Um, okay. So, um, but uh, I, I I come I guess a little uh, I don't want to say a little more organically. Maybe I don't know. Um, I don't usually go in and say. You know, I want the characters to be very sad at this point, uh, or very frightened at this point. Uh, I might do that in an adventure, but I don't. I, I I just don't tend to think of of hitting certain beats in stories. That that sounds a little more uh, mechanical, or I guess in its worst case, formulaic mm-hmm. um, than mm-hmm. than what I tend to think of. I may still do that. I just don't think of it in that term. 
Um, but uh, yeah, if you if you have an idea though that you want to highlight, that's probably a good place to start. Critical decision points, uh, you should definitely yes have a few of those, and definitely uh, you need to give the GM uh, ideas of what of what to do with possible outcomes. You can't obviously you don't know how they're going to develop the adventure the, the seed, but there should at least be a couple of possible outcomes and where they might lead. Because that's the next thing. It's like, okay, you have the seed, you have this adventure. Well, where does the adventure go from there? If you can include just a little bit of a clue as to what other adventure types or other encounters this could lead into, it's it's handy to be able to include that. NPCs and encounters. Um, NPCs, definitely. Um, um, I mean, unless it's purely some sort of uh, adventure based around surviving a specific environment. Uh, even then, you probably have creatures. Um, so yeah, some key NPCs. You don't necessarily have to include the stats. Although, again, if you're creating your own your own um, uh, setting, you can certainly refer to stats you've already created. And if you've got a a creature index or a, or, or um, other NPCs you've created. You can certainly refer to those and probably should, uh, but you don't have to include them right there in the adventure seed unless you do it as maybe as a sidebar or something, if it's something really special. This is good advice. And it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, the idea of, of getting less prescriptive, you know, where where you're, you're moving towards a more, a more generic or open way, getting away from the concept of something like story beats, so to speak. So I, I, I really I really do like that. And on that, in that same vein, and talking about tone or theme or even even setting, which we've kind of been dancing around that idea, um, from your perspective, uh, how how focused to a particular setting or theme should an adventure seed be? Is it is is too generic a bad idea? Should you really target it uh, towards a specific product or a specific thing? Yeah, I think you should target it. I know people have done products of, you know, 100 adventure ideas or whatever it is, um, <laughs> which can be useful. Um, but if you're if you're creating your own setting, you definitely want them to be focused on things that your setting does well and mm. and and people have fun doing. Because I, th- I think the point that you made before about that setting it, you know, attaching it to either an NPC or a particular location makes the most sense so that you can then highlight things that may not necessarily be mechanical, but you want it to be useful for for the reader. Mm. Yes. Because one of the things that, um, and I know that I, I go back to L5R because I've obviously had a lot to do with it um, being, you know, doing some freelance for FFG in that, in that realm. But in uh, in their book um, Emerald Empire, it, it they've started to do these adventure seeds, which is a great way of doing it. And I think that Star Wars has done it as well in in its modules um, and uh, and resource material. Is that they have a clearly defined layout, um, which has the hook, the rising action, and then the climax of, of the scenario. They're not huge areas either. They're only probably around about two fifty to three hundred words. But they're quite clear, without being too, um, uh, without covering every single little piece of whether it be mechanical or or whatever else. That I think that, and in, in this particular book, 
they've done it for both NPCs um, and uh, and people, um, as well as locations, and it works really, really well to give that a little bit more of uh, usefulness to uh, to the GM. That was another question I had: is is your um, you know length? <laughs> yeah. um, you know how how long should a good adventure seat be? Are we are you shooting? You know, are you shooting for a couple hundred words? You know, uh, a single page, uh, a two page split. But I mean, I guess uh, they go back, back down to yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, for an adventure seat, I would probably target a few paragraphs um, at most. I mean, you could get away with maybe with even just a couple of paragraphs. Um, but I wouldn't. If you're starting to get to a page long, then you're really getting more into. Uh, well, I guess it could be that. It, it, it could be, but that's that. But you're getting into set piece territory at that mm. point. Yeah, there, there, there you go. Yep. <laughs> where where you're really defining? Okay, here's some here's some serious detail, and I think I think there's a place for both, and we've seen them both in um you know I, I go to, I go to Star Wars as a prime example where I I've seen you know where we have honest to goodness adventure seeds where you can fit you know five six seven on a page. Um, and then you've got two page splats of of basic you know set pieces that really tend to revolve around a specific scenario or a specific NPC and get into a little more detail um, and are a little less generic, a little more prescriptive. Yes, um, and my books are just a little too far away from me here, but uh, <laughs> the um, one of the adventures I did or adventure ideas I did for um, Star Wars it was built around this idea of um, the PCs uh, basically taking over a, a, um, a space station right over, under the nose of the Empire and then getting, you know, conning the local government into basically helping them rebuild it because it was like damage to the Clone Wars or something like that. And, help, and then using that rebuilt station to ambush an Imperial fleet later on. Uh, and to, <laughs> but to do that, there's there's several. That's that's gets into a little bit longer piece where you're into an entire adventure, but you're highlighting each and each section almost becomes its own seed, basically for that section of the adventure. Or in this case, I think it was a, actually a, more of a campaign idea. Um, so each seed was represented sort of each each part of that of that campaign. So it would highlight, you know. Well, what sort of events would happen in each of these sections of the adventure? That's a really unique way of doing it. So that basically you you setting up your campaign or mini campaign of uh, you know three or four sessions or adventures, but you're just treating them as an adventure seed for each of those that area of the overall campaign. That's that's one way that you could if you uh, were creating your own setting or whatever else that you had. A number of different um, adventure seeds throughout the the adventure or the the, the setting that you're doing that can then cr- form this greater story. That's really unique. I like that idea. And from a for, from a sort of creator standpoint, you know, there's you know, I get a lot of ideas when I'm writing. I get a lot of ideas when I'm working on these products, and there's no way that I'll ever be able to run them all. Um, <laughs> And uh, so it's fun as a, it's fun to get that get to sort of get these ideas out there. And even if they're not fully detailed, at least say, hey, here's a cool adventure idea. Here's a cool campaign idea. Here's the a framework that you can start with to to get you going, and then have at it. 
Mm. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the heart of this. And ultimately, when we talk about the usefulness of developing adventure seeds on your own, whether you're going to publish them or whether you're just going to use them in their own games, that coupled with true, uh, you know, seed creation and set piece creation is it, it's it's that it's that that spark to the creativity. It's like lighting a stick of dynamite, you know, when you're when you're totally caved in and you're blocked, at least for me as a GM, it's one of those things that, you know, when I I'm struggling to to, to write or to come up with something new you know, taking a, a few glimpses at, at those concepts that I haven't looked at in a long time, it just really sparks movement um, and and becomes this incredibly versatile resource. And, you know, and, and I guess this is a side effect of our conversation. I'm I listen, I'm I'm encouraging all of you to go out there and write these. Yes, that's amazing. We're talking about that. But listen, if you're just a GM, you need to be using these <laughs> <laughs> like 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 much deeper than that you just need to be using them at 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 a much higher level your your games will improve um you will find yourself to be a more responsive game master as a result so chris can we talk can we talk a little bit more about just very quickly on that topic of how people can actually lay that out is there a is there a process in place that we can uh we can impart to our listeners that uh will allow people to you know, not just go, okay, I've got this adventure idea and just write that down in a couple of paragraphs. Can we provide them with a, a bit of more of a structured format uh, for for those people who are fairly new to the game um, or uh, are really sort of fairly new to uh, to getting their ideas that they have down on paper? Yeah. Um, and this actually bleeds Huli into a conversation on honest to goodness set pieces. Yeah, it does. you know, expanding expanding this this generic adventure seed idea into something much larger. Mm-hmm. Because a set piece for me is a great place to start. Um, you know, an adventure seed typically encapsulates a session, whereas a set piece is typically an encounter. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, uh, there you know, there, there's there's a cool encounter, and. In in my gaming career, I've I've kept you know, in Star Wars. We always refer to it as the GM holocron, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know uh, your your GM notebook, your your game bible, whatever it is. Where I, I would just keep it with me and and jot things down. I devote a full page to a set piece whenever it came up. Um, the colorful location, okay? Key location. What's what's the size? What's the scale of the location? What are the terrain? What are the features? You know, going so far as to noting that, mm-hmm. and even in, in contrast to the simplicity of adventure seat um, that Sterling brought up before, e- even potentially saying, okay, look, this is the difficulty for navigating this terrain or this particular hazard. Mm-hmm. Actually noting that, um, and then of course, you know, what are the threats? What are the NPCs? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, whereas an adventure seed is about those decision points, a, a set piece is a fleshed out decision point mm-hmm. in, you know, you know, singular. OK, mm-hmm. um, whether whether it's decision based or encounter based. Um, the, the key thing for me is, is, you know, taking the time to, to note all these things, um, you know, and just jot them down in, in a somewhat prescriptive way. But there's at least in my experience, good things to do for this and bad things to do for this. And if you look at some of the really good, you know, dual page splats that have been published on, on at least what I call set pieces, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's common things they note, um, and really good ones. Uh, the kicker for me, Huli, is having either multiple ways or a unique way to resolve the situation mm. or the encounter Mm-hmm. That does not necessarily rely on 
kill all the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that that's that's kind of what's worked for me. And especially because th- with this particular system, it's such a it's such a narrative heavy system and the narrative dice what what they impart onto how everything works for this. Mm. Um this this is actually I mean, I I actually do not recommend what I do to everyone else. I would love to get your thoughts and Sterling's thoughts on this because from from my perspective, I I tend to in my home games especially, I get way too detailed in for for my own notes. And what I what I mean is I I I engage in a behavior I do not wish to promulgate. And that behavior is that I I tend to account for about seventeen potential scenarios. Right. You know, what what if what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, then this. Well, what if that? Well, then you do this. Well, what if this? Then you do that. I mean, literally, it's almost like one step shy of developing a flow chart because I've been playing this game long enough and running it long enough that I know a single triumph or a despair will take everything I've planned and just shove it in the garbage can. Right. <laughs> yes. So. How how do you manage that and still keep the set piece intact? I would love to get Sterling's thoughts and your thoughts on this mm. because this you know the narrative the narrative dice system makes things go sideways when it comes to adventure seeds, set pieces, or hell, Sterling, even full on module creation. How do you handle that? How do you plan for that? <laughs> well, I mean, with the um, yeah, with the set pieces, because obviously with big adventures and modules. You know the set pieces are part part of the deal, um, and so you're dependent on the on the GM to uh, revise that as needed for their for their games. So sometimes you'll see advice in there for hey, if things really go wrong, here's a way to bring that on track. We don't tend to spend a lot of work count on that because we really want to focus on well, we don't have that much work count, and if you have a whole bunch of extra uh, scenario idea or extra ideas that it might that might be carried out. You don't know that the uh, the GM will be able to refer back to it that quickly or whatever. It's kind of different when it's your when it's your home game because uh, you generally know what you wrote um, or remember what you wrote, <laughs> um, and so you know where to go look when something goes goes awry. Uh, so so um, so what I'm writing like I was just thinking. Oh, I don't want to give anything away. I was thinking it's like the end of. Some of the one of the some of the ending encounters in Ghosts of Dathomir, which is for Star for the Star Wars Force and Destiny game, um, there's some elements in there that really are kind of going from one set piece to another, um, and then you're dependent on again the GM for because it's that that adventure has a lot of exploration in it. Um, it's you sort of expected that the uh, the GM can bridge over and adapt. The situation as they as they roll into the next one, so I guess I don't spend a ton of time writing alternate. I, I try to focus on the one that seems like is the most fun, and I like the best. And then if something and you're right, a triumph or a despair can can throw things uh, out of whack a little bit, or maybe a lot. It, but a little bit of that is also if you're the if you're as the GM giving out the results of despairs or triumphs as opposed to your players and i know that's sometimes it's one sometimes the other but if you're the one in control of that a little bit you can you can try and focus those on elements that are still fun but aren't going to derail your your set piece 
at least not in the beginning. The further you get into the set piece, the less I worry about that. And the other thing I do is if there's something cool in the set piece, I'm going to want to try and have that happen like first thing or very early in the encounter so that it ha- so it gets a chance to happen without it getting derailed. Because that's, that's another thing with like, with like adventures that I've started to try and do too is that how many times have you been, at a, been running a, an adventure at, at a convention and you just people are having so much fun at the early part of the adventure, you never quite get to the cool battle scene at the end or whatever it is. <laughs> so, and so what I've tried to do is move some of the, those elements earlier into the advent, in, in the adventure, have some of those things happen sooner. That way I know that they will, first of all, I'll know that they'll get to see them and play through them and have fun with them, but also is less chance of, of the story getting away from those pieces just by by, by evolving. That's a really interesting thought. You start off with the Big Bang instead of leading up to it, which is, honestly, that's the traditional session right there, is you lead up to the Big Bang. You always start, yes, well, you've met in the tavern. It's the rusty nail, and you're here again. And <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, it's, very, it's a very intriguing idea. And having run similar adventures like that, I can attest that starting sort of, for lack of a better term, in media res, you know, mm. um, is also a great way to, especially at a convention, shove a very disparate, potentially disparate group of players who don't know each other right into the fire. Um, mm. So that's a very intriguing suggestion, Sterling. And of course, in media res was West End Games, Star Wars. That was a big, mm. a big element of how they approached adventure design. And so, of course, I've kept <laughs> kept that all along. Um, mm. <laughs> One of the, one thing that I'd, I'd like to mention that that you just touched base on, um, Sterling, and I think that it's really great advice for anybody who is designing modules for like the the larger scope as opposed to what we're talking about today. But it's certainly another worth mentioning is that when you're the GM, you're obviously in charge of where threat and despair go. So when you're writing these adventures. Focus on that. Don't necessarily worry too much about triumphs and advantages and how they can be spent. Look at what the GM has control of and focus on that rather than sort of, you know, rather than doing what Chris is suggesting um, and going sort of like 17 different um, options that you can go to. Oh, I'm. That's my point. I'm not suggesting. Oh, you're not doing that, right? (laughs) I'm saying, I'm saying, don't do that. Right. Yes. That's that's what I've done in the past, especially when I first started years ago, trying to get a handle on this system. So I was, you know, it's not something I encourage. So what you guys are suggesting, no, those are the appropriate methods. Yeah. So focusing on those where the despair gets, uh, where the despairs can be used in this particular encounter or this particular scenario. Um, as well as threat, is fantastic advice, I think. Yeah, and the other thing is is if you give some uh, ideas uh, in your... I know I said don't get into too many mechanics, but if you do have a, an idea for, hey, a despair in this situation does has this effect, or a triumph in this situation can spur this effect, then you're building it in a little bit more. At least you're building at least a couple of elements in that assuming they make sense for the situation, mm. uh, can help keep your set piece on track instead of maybe derailing it. Yeah. I guess the the point that I'm making is that um, with what you've said is that with um, uh, with triumphs and advantages, that's 
that's the realm based on the the mechanics of the system that's the the realm of what the players have control of and i think you're right it's important to have some elements of where triumphs and, and advantages can be spent especially when it comes to you know offering some advice where the players get a little bit stuck but when it comes to knowing exactly what's going to go on in that scenario so that it's creating less work for the GM so that they can focus on the story and everything that's going around them is to provide some examples of despairs and, and threats. And I know, Chris, that you've done that in some of your adventures that, um, that you've written as well. Yes. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a common tactic I've found to be helpful. Um, for, for despairs, I, I think it's almost mandatory, at least mm. from what I write, because mm. it's one of those things. As a GM, you get to decide how despairs are spent. Yep. So when that, oh, crap moment hits the dice, bam, there's no analysis paralysis. And even though typically uh, triumphs are determined by players, like you said, it never hurts to have a suggestion ready for the, a good one that the GM can throw out. Because we've all been playing games, whether it's at home or out and about at conventions, where the players are debating for 10 seconds or, or not knowing what to do with the triumph. And the, you know, if the GM can pipe up and say, I have a suggestion, you know, that the players are, yes, please. Um, and, and savvy players will also typically tend to listen to the GM suggestion because it usually means it's going to make for a better game. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm all for that. Absolutely. Mm. Excellent. Well, this has been an interesting discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it has. Um, we've run the gamut over a lot of different places and <clears throat> it was, it's been fascinating, Sterling, to, to get kind of a glimpse into your mind and we were so eager to bring you on to talk about this because we've had some people say, look, this is an area of, of content creation that I, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> and it's, it's something that we feel is so terribly useful to, one, the success of a published product on the Foundry, especially if you're going after your own setting. Hmm. Um, and, and two, even from our experiences, can be so beneficial for a home game. So – this interesting look into kind of how you should think about it and how you should look has been incredibly helpful to me. I, I guess to, to wrap this conversation up and kind of bring it home, I really would like to solicit some final thoughts from you as a, as an experienced and an award-winning RPG writer, what advice can be given by Mr. Sterling Hershey for, for the aspiring writers out there who want to make great content? What are the biggest nuggets of wisdom you can impart no pressure (laughs) (laughs) well okay so for for making great i mean for making great content um if you're you know make something that you like yourself first of all if it you know if, if you're if you're writing an encounter you're writing an adventure and it's just not coming out the way you want it's not quite doesn't seem quite fun enough then you probably want to change that up um don't just because you've made an outline doesn't mean uh, if you get partway into it, and you're like, oh, this really isn't working out the way I hoped. Or, or if you're into a playtest and people are like, oh, this isn't quite as much fun as I had hoped. Go back, look at it again, see what you can revise to. To uh, maybe it's just a small change that can bring out whatever flavor or element or story piece that you want to highlight. Um, and or maybe it's just maybe that just that story piece doesn't doesn't work for this particular adventure and pull that out, set that aside. Maybe you can use it in the next one. Yeah, I mean, don't don't get too hung up on on uh, elements that seem like they have to be there. 
if they're not if they're not working in in, in the story or or just aren't as much fun as you thought uh, going in. From a more of a I guess a game design mechanical standpoint, I find that writing from outlines actually does help me quite a lot. I end up making a lot of big decisions in the outline phase, and then it makes it much easier just to write. The, now, part of that is, of course, being a freelancer, I need to hit a certain amount of word count, and it's easier for me to focus on getting those words down on paper or on the screen if I don't have to sit there and decide every aspect of whatever it is that's I'm trying to write about. If I can work out at least the major elements in the outline phase, that actually does save me a lot of time in the writing on the writing side. Very good advice. And then going back to what you said, like self-editing, whether it's, I mean, especially content, that's hard. <laughs> it's hard for writers to do. It's also hard for any creator to take critical review or, or critical stock of the work they've done and not cling to, you know, parts and pieces of it in a very personal way. It's hard. Yeah, and and if you and you know if you're creating your own setting or whatever for sale, and you know if you can afford to have an editor, great, do that. At the very least, have friends or people that are that understand what you're trying to do, and understand gaming. Uh, have them at least read through it, and then so when I so when I get feedback from Fancy Flight or whatever publisher I'm working with, uh, you know we'll put it we'll send in a a, a, a draft, and then I'll get comments back. And it doesn't. I, I tend to do it the same way. When I get my com- get the comments back, I'll look at them. I'll look over them. Sort of scan down quickly to get an idea of, of how on track or off track I might be in certain areas. And then um, I'll actually put it away for a little while, mm-hmm. and then come back to it whether it's the next day or whatever. Because if I try and if I try and I don't like get overly upset about recommendations, but like everybody else, you know, there are times where it's just like, oh man. <laughs> didn't really like that part um, yes. or or pointing out something where I've actually made a mistake or something like that a mechanical mistake it happens it does oh it happens yeah it does happen but I find that I, if I can go, sort of go through that emotional uh, response mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. put it aside and then come back to it later and then object more objectively go okay yes you're right I gotta fix this mm-hmm. uh, or no, you didn't really follow what I was trying to do, and then I can write an email back and say, "Hey, here's what I was trying to do," mm. and it may or may not uh, fly. But <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, to be able to take at least be able to take criticism, and uh, but also don't just blindly accept it all. I mean, there are times where you might have a better idea of of what you're trying to achieve than the person that's doing the editing or doing the or if it's a friend, uh, their comments. You can't just take them all you know, completely at face value. You do need to assess whether, yeah, yeah, this is right. I feel like this is right, or no, this is. I want to go this direction because I feel now it's an actual mistake, grammatical mistake, or something like that. You should fix it. But from a story standpoint, you know, it's your setting or adventure. The other thing that, just very quickly, one thing that I just want to mention to, to people who are creating stuff on the Foundry. Uh, and uh, I'd be interested to, in your take on this, uh, Sterling. When we see some of the stuff that we, we see from Fantasy Flight Games, they are limited by word count because they're a printed product. Where, yes, when, very much so. When we're talking about stuff for the Foundry, you're not limited in that way because it's a PDF you can go to town. But the downside is, is that if you go to town and just like put every, you know, do a complete brain dump, you're going to 
potentially confuse the reader. You're potentially going to create more of a storm than you need to, that you really need to start to do what FFG do and, and hone down. Give yourself a bit of a word count. Know that there's going to be around about um, you know 500 words per page, uh, depending on you know what sort of whether you've got artwork and and whatever else on there. You know when it comes to these adventure seeds and um, uh, set pieces, know that limit yourself to a certain number. Look at what's already out there um, from FFG. Do a bit of a word count. Work out what that is and then try to limit yourself to that. You'll find that your ideas will coalesce much more than being just a little bit airy-fairy out there type thing. Would you agree with that? Yes. Um, in fact, when we were working on on uh, yeah, products, you know, Fancy Flight, when they send out the information to us, we get a, a number of of uh, like outline well outlines or or product descriptions but we also get a document that tells us what pages we're working on they they will have actually outlined every page not outlined they will actually have already figured out how much do they want to devote to each topic whether it's a certain and what, how many pages are, devo- are are devoted to a planet or a character or whatever it is and then they will actually break break that down even further and have a chart where it says this page gets you know X number of words. This page has has art on it, so it has less wor- this other lesser number of words. And then they, they've done that for the whole product. And mm. so that also tells them how many words they, they've got in the product, how they're going to split that up to the different freelancers. Mm. Um, and of course, since freelancers get paid by the word, mm. um, <laughs> that's uh, and, and if you're that's a, actually another good point. If you are uh, engaging with other freelancers, you definitely and, and they are getting paid by the word. Then you definitely need to control your costs by determining what number of words you're willing you or can afford to pay at a given rate mm. but from a um there's a few things here one is if you just start writing and just keep going without without any sort of organization then you might ramble off into areas that are a little off to the side they're they're, they're maybe not the core of what you're trying to uh, what you're trying to do and having limiting the number of pages um, will help like you said will help uh, focus focus your product um, and distill it down to uh, to its its best parts hopefully yeah. and the other thing to, about this too is that once you start looking around if you're gonna se- if you're gonna sell this and not just put it up for whatever people want to pay you then you start need, you start to need to look at okay what other products are available in this for, for Genesis or whatever or DMs guild if you're doing that whatever it is how many pages are some of these other products using what prices do they seem to be successful charging uh, or make sense and so and you, you'll find another in other longer standing creation or community content creation programs you can get some pretty wildly different page numbers page counts and sometimes that's good sometimes it's not uh, <laughs> <laughs> depends on you know well because the other thing about community content is that you have writers and developers of all different experience levels and they're but they're all trying to compete in this sort of same space so if you're looking to see what other people are up to i'm not saying you all need if you have a 16 page adventure they all should cost this you can't really you can't do that <laughs> but but it does give you an idea of what might be successful at a given price point mm, yeah absolutely. and your early advice is, is keen to me it's like it, the best analogy i could think of is when you're thinking about the 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 amount of content you're writing 
and you know, as you say, not going off into tangents or things that are too much. Yes, you've got the freedom with non-printed products to not really care about word count, but think of it as a game master. Mm. If your player hands you a 25-page backstory, what is your response going to be? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Give me that's a month. Excellent point. <laughs> and a hot lot of. <laughs> Um, that's, that's, I, I, I don't know. I find, I find that content creators got to look at it the same way. Yeah. What, <laughs> I mean, yes, I understand you, you may think this is the coolest thing in the world, but you've got to divorce yourself from that. Mm. So I don't know. That's, that's well, at least my analogy on that, on that topic. And it does get into kind of like with the adventure seed, how far, how much do you write? I mean, I remember getting like, I think it was the original Greyhawk box set way back in the day. And they had descriptions of the different countries, but they were really short. Mm. And so there wasn't enough there, I felt like, at least at my experience level at the time. I was like, okay, well, that's great, but what do I do with all, you know, all these different <laughs> different elements? I felt like, is there, is there more out there? And of course, in some cases, there were in adventures. But, mm. but yet, if you go the other direction and you get a tome of hundreds of pages right out of the gate you got to convince somebody to take the time to read all that. Mm. And especially if you're not a known game company or author or whatever, people will be more hesitant to pick that up. So if I see a, a, a product that's out there for, I don't know, I'm just throwing numbers out there, 20, 25 bucks and there's you know, 400 pages. I'm, I, I, there's not a, there's a good chance I'm not going to go for that just because I'll be like, well, I First of all, I don't, won't know if it's how good it is. But second of all, it'd be like that's a lot of time and effort to devote to something that I may or may not want. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can break that down in, into smaller elements, mm-hmm. uh, number one, you'll have maybe a better chance of selling more things at a different price, at different prices. But also, uh, it gives people a chance to buy into this, buy into your idea, mm-hmm. and then if they like it, then they can continue. They might continue to buy later uh, mm-hmm. elements so going back to like um well any game line will have the you know start off with the core with the core book or the core setting and then you add on from there when you're deciding to make your setting you got to decide how much you're going to put in that core first product because it needs to be detailed enough to have a full setting where people understand what they can do with it and what what makes it unique or fun without sort of overwhelming the reader mm. and then if you want to detail out other areas of your setting, then great. The people who have bought into it, they know, oh, hey, they might recognize the name of the country or the name of the NBC that this next product is about. Hmm. Whereas if you put them all in one giant book, that they may never, may not see that hmm. or may not want to spend the time on it. Yeah, absolutely. And also, this comes back full circle again, as you hinted at a moment ago, for Adventure Seeds, hmm. right? Yes. And this is one of the reasons that adventure seeds are a fantastic idea because they give you, okay, wow, wow, you've written two paragraphs on this particular country, this particular thing or theme or trope within your setting. What do I do with that? Well, you know what? Here's three or four adventure seeds. Here's what you can do with that. Yeah. And great way to flesh that out. Mm-hmm. We, do it, we do it all the time in, in all the, you know, the, the career books uh, for the star Wars games setting books i mean we we do we do this sort of thing a lot mm. it's a really useful thing and i think that speaks sort of volumes if you've got a company like uh ffg and an experienced writer such as yourself sterling who is doing this yeah maybe it's something you should be doing too <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a, there's, there's probably a reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if every, if, you, if every company you out you see out there is doing something similar like this, it's it's been proven to be useful. Yep, absolutely. For and the for, other thing is the other thing it's fun too is if and, and this doesn't happen a lot, but if somebody comes back to you later and said, "Hey, I I took that idea and here's what happened in my game," mm. and they and something really cool comes out of it, that can be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, and you can ask them too. You can also ask them, "Hey, oh, hey, you took it in this direction. What what inspired you to do that?" You know, mm. and then you might learn something about your own setting or game um, yep. from how they're using it. If if nothing else, it is a great marketing tool for your own product. <laughs> well, this has been some stellar advice. Should I say some sterling advice? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> wow yeah wow that was that you was, went wow. there right good <laughs> yeah yeah okay um uh this is this has been some excellent advice sir so thank you um and and speaking of promotional obviously sterling we thank you for joining us for this talk we would love to have you back on the show if you're willing uh maybe for a future episode um we have a recurring segment uh, where we we kind of talk about some of the amazing products that are on the foundry so we'd love to have you back to specifically talk about um uh, one of your products um but in you know to kind of close things out very quickly you've got two things on the foundry right now um you know for people that know your work and know the quality of it uh what are those called and uh what are they yeah so the uh, the first one uh is something called instant adversaries and what it, it, it's you can use it with any setting. It, and what it is, uh, basically, over the years uh, when I've been running games and I need a, I need an NPC on the fly, and a lot of times you know, you'll flip open the book to find something that's close to what you need. And it seems like more. Well, it seems like it's very often that uh, I'll do that and I'll be like, oh well, I need that guy, that that person to have uh, a better, I don't know, a better gunnery skill, something like that. Mm. And then halfway to the encounter, I'll forget that I changed it just because I'm in the flow of, of responding to the players and I'll glance down at the, at the product or, and I'll just forget at that moment that, oh, yeah, I, I changed their, their defense or I you know, increased their, this characteristic. And so what Instant Adversaries does is it gives the GM the ability to sort of create a NPC very, very quickly right at the table by checking a few boxes and doing a little bit of math. I couldn't quite get away from doing no math. <laughs> um, and uh, then you just have that at hand. You use it through the adventure and then, or through that, through that encounter. And then, so you can do it, you know, either whether you're marking it in pencil on something you've printed out or, or uh, what I do is I'll put it in a, a sleeve protector. Uh, page protector mm-hmm. um, and use dry erase markers to just check the boxes and write because you you can go through and you you pick which agility which sorry which um, characteristic you want to focus that character on so if they need to be really good at brawn or really bad at agility something like that you start off with with that pick pick a set of numbers that basically high basically you you go in and say okay here's the the level of or the number I need for brawn and then it'll also have additional numbers for the other characteristics written out next to them. If you need to change one of those, you just mark it out and and, and note uh, the different number that you want. Then you there's a set of skills. Um, so like if I'm using brawn for let me just use brawn for an example. Brawn um, 
I might say, hey, okay, I need a character with a four or brawn. Okay, well, in this case, it's also got twos across the board, except for will, which is three, and presence, which is one. If I wanted to change one of those other things, I'd just mark it out and, and replace it. Then I would jump down to, there's a list of skills. So I've got, like, uh, just from a overall set of skills, sort of like brawler, melee fighter, survivalist are the three that I've got. And there's a, there's some skills listed next to each one of those. And so if I need the brawler character, you know, I can say, okay, well, I need a brawn of four, I'll check that box. I want it to be a brawler, I'll check that box. And that gives me athletics two, brawl three, melee two, vigilance one. And I'll say, okay, uh, talents and abilities. Um, yeah, this will be an adversary, so I can check the adversary box and decide how much of an adversary it is. And then maybe a few other, a couple of other real basic talents. And at the bottom, I'll have some weapons that that character is likely to use. So if brawn, it might be a sword or knife, or, or if it's a creature, it, might, it can bite or have uh, fangs. Uh, and then I jump back up and, and in this, on the page and just fill out the derived stats. So for soak, wounds, strain, defense... And there's a separate line for minions if this is a if this is actually going to be a minion, and the dry, that section shows you right on the page what to add together. And so you can do all this once, especially after you've done it a couple, a couple of times. You can do all this real quickly. And I've got one of those columns for you know brawn, agility, intellect, cunning, willpower, and presence. The second half of that of this uh, product is based around vehicles. And it's a little bit different. Um, it's really more of a table of vehicle of different vehicle types, mm-hmm. and then with a silhouette, max speed, handling, defense, armor, uh, uh, hull, and system, hull threshold, and uh, system system strain. Um, and again, this is just so I can get get a vehicle or a vehicle type uh, just quickly on the table, and especially for for Genesis where there hasn't been a lot of vehicles available uh, right. so far. So these are not full vehicle write-ups by any means. Mm. But again, um, it lets you it lets you create it. And I wanted to. I'm, I'm glad you're talking about this because I, I was actually speaking to somebody online, and I was like, "Well, yeah, well, Sterling Hershey's got instant adversaries." And they're like, "Well, I've got a lot of the NPC compendiums." I'm like, "No, you, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, that, that's not what it is at all." Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's a little bit difficult to explain without showing it. And I remember when the, uh, the foundry was first being talked about and I was discussing with some other, other, uh, other people that were involved in it, sort of what I was trying to do and they sort of would get it. But yeah, once, uh, once I had it up and out there, then I had people coming back and said, okay, now I understand what you're trying to do. And I do provide a couple of examples in there too. And in fact, in fact, if you're on the, uh, the foundry, if you bring up the, uh, the PDF preview, uh, you can see a, the example pages uh, with them all marked up and and so forth. It's like if you're if you're a if you're a game master who likes having NPC cards, if you find that to be incredibly valuable, so that you have an NPC on the fly, but you hate the fact that that card is never going to be perfectly customized for the scenario at hand. Mm. This is like the best of both worlds. Mm. Yes. So, and that's exactly actually that's exactly the situation because I use the the NPC cards. For Star Wars, mm. and of course they've got some for for Genesis that I don't have yet, but but that was the exact thing. It, whether it was the card or looking up a uh, stats in a book, um, same way, same same problem. Yeah. Now this I, is not. I will say this is not to replace the NPC generation card. If you're trying to make a serious NPC that's like the bad guy for your entire adventure, 
this is not the tool for that. I mean, you could do it, but you'll 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 be much more satisfied with one you build yourself. This is very much intended to be more on the fly kind of things. Save your pants. Yep. Yes. Very cool. So you got that out there. It's been doing very well, but even better than that has been your adventure module for Android. Yes. Um. Well, in terms of sales, actually, instant adversaries has been. Has oh, been yes. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's silver right now. I'd have okay. to go back and look. Wow. But no, PowerPlay is sold. I'm sorry, PowerPlay is my yeah my Android mini campaign. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you want, this is actually a pretty good subject for this 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 podcast anyway because talking about how far do you go with something. <laughs> so, uh, as a this is a mini campaign in within what, about 30 pages, 32 mm-hmm. pages, I think. And this was definitely a situation where, as I was developing the idea for for this, and I was tr- sort of bouncing ideas uh, actually off talking to my wife about it and trying to figure out where that line would be and was describing what I was trying to do. And she's like, that is more than one adventure. <laughs> it was seriously more than one adventure. So then I was like, all right. So I gotta, so then it's like, all right, well, I can go this this mini sort of mini campaign route. And so there's basically three adventures outlined in there. Uh, not outlined. There's actually encounters um, with with additional advice on how to expand them or how to what other things they might lead to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it, it, so far, yeah, uh, it's been selling pretty well, and uh, that was fun. It's been fun to do, um, and I will be interested in hearing some feedback on that in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe Sterling, you'd like to come back on the show to talk about Power Play uh, because I know that I'm I'm totally excited uh, to discuss it uh, with you. Sure, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sterling, for uh, for taking the time, and I, I know that um, you know your your time is precious. Um, so uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show to talk to us uh, about this topic, uh, about adventure seeds and and uh, and module creation. Um, and uh, look, the work that you've done in the past, I'm a bit of a fanboy myself. When it comes to your stuff, I've been with um, Star Wars D6 all the way from the very beginning. Uh, so, um, yeah, to have you on the show, I'm probably a little bit awestruck. So, uh, <laughs> so thank you very much for, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Sterling. Oh, what a great conversation. I love Sterling Hershey so much. <laughs> so do I. And I know I fanboy I, I, every single time I go anywhere near Sterling. It's just like I become all... Uh, because he was so heavily involved with um, with Star Wars D6. And that's really where I got my uh, my training wheels, I guess, when it comes to being a GM. Uh, yeah. So uh, so his contribu- uh, contribution to, uh, to the RPG uh, was amazing. Uh, and continues to do so. So uh, yeah, talking to talking to Sterling is amazing. But uh, but I, I just like Ster- I, I like Sterling as a human. Oh, like, absolutely. He's, he's so kind and he's so generous. And I I've I've I mean he, he puts up with us, but <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen him put up with things. I'm just he's just he's just a genuinely wonderful human. Yeah. He, like okay, I first met Sterling Hershey nine years ago. Right. Okay. I'd been doing the Order 66 podcast for almost two years at that point, mm-hmm. and we'd had Sterling on, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those things that it, was, it wasn't lost on me who Sterling Hershey was, but it was almost like he was this paragon of, you know, oh. <laughs> I'm at Gen Con for the very first time in my life, right. nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I go to Gen Con, 
and I happen to meet Sterling Hershey. Like, it shows up. It's like, oh, my gosh, Sterling. And I'm there with my wife. Mm. And he's like, hey, how's it going? And you know how it is when you meet somebody like that. You expect to, you know, to have a nice handshake and be cordial. And okay, well, I'll... I'll I'll, I'll I'll go back into the mud, you know, <laughs> with the rest of the with the rest of the plebeians. Yep. And this man, this man, he chit chats for a while, and he looks at us. He says, "Well, hey, what are you guys doing right now?" It was a Sunday afternoon. He's like, "What are you guys doing right now?" I, I want to go kind of troll the exhibit hall. You guys want to come with me? Wow. And it, yeah, I know. And it was like, sure. <laughs> and we hung out with Sterling Hershey for four hours and walked the exhibit hall and talked and learned about all the games and stuff he likes and yep. and and you know met his wife Mary and um. You know, and just just this genuine, amazing human being. Yeah. Uh, he's been to Gamer Nation Con like almost every year we've had it. He just yep. comes. We had him actually had him as a guest of honor one year. Yep. But even then, he just comes on his own like Sam Stewart does, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, just runs games and chats with people and is just an all-around amazing human. So I approachable. I love Sterling Hershey. Yeah, so approachable as, as, as a man. He's just, yeah, and... I mean, it was great that he's come onto the show, but um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Every time that I've had anything to do with him uh, at Gamma Nation Con, because that's really the only time that I get to to sort of, you know, rub elbows with uh, with some of the uh, the writers and, and things like that. But um, yeah, he's always been so accommodating. He'll take the time to to really talk to you about what the industry is on such a on on such a level that it doesn't feel like you're being spoken down to. It doesn't feel not that many people do in the industry, but some people sort of get that, that little bit of elitism. There is just nothing like that. It is just pure, uh, you know, niceness, I guess is the only thing that I can think of right now um, to describe <laughs> him. But, uh, but no, genuinely, I agree with you. Wonderful human being. And it was great to have him on the show. Yeah. All right, so um, we digress as we uh, fanboy over uh, Sterling Hershey, uh, but thanks again, <laughs> Sterling, for being on the show. Um, so should we welcome another guest onto the show, Chris? Oh, I've been waiting for this one. Yeah, let's do it. So let's welcome him into a segment we call Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventures, campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators, they go above and beyond, subvert our expectations, and break the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Indeed. Now, tonight's guest is one of the pillars of the Genesis RPG community. He's the moderator of the Genesis RPG Facebook community, the Reddit page, author of two amazing supplements you can find right now on the Genesis Foundry, with no doubt more coming on the way, and host of the Don't Despair podcast. Fantastic. And without further ado, uh, let's introduce you to the author of The Something Strange Setting, as well as the aforementioned many things, <laughs> Mr. Scott Zumwalt. Hello. Scott, my brother from a Texas. Uh, how are you? Welcome That's to the show, fantastic. man. Fantastic. Thank you. You forgot two things, though. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yes. oh. What did I forget? Uh, uh, the Discord server. Also, <gasps> admin that. Yes, you did. And the, the lesser known MeWe group. <laughs> What's MeWe? What is MeWe? MeWe is. Oh wow! Uh, it's the it's a new social media platform. It's very similar to Facebook. I don't want to sell it too much because whatever. I'm not here to hawk Miwi. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a thing. Uh, they promised like not to sell your data, 
Uh, right. They have a whole business model and how they you know, do that or whatever. A lot of people from Google Plus went to MeWe after Google Plus went away. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, is it free? Yeah, it's totally free. And, and yet they're not selling your data. Yeah, you can like buy like emoji and like other weird things. Um, I don't know how well it's doing. It's probably like got VC funding and a bunch of other crap. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. My, my wife is a professional marketer um, and she uh, always relates to me on marketing saying that I take to heart. If a product is free, guess what? You're the product. You're the product. <laughs> so, but okay, MeWe. Well, let's go check it out. Well, yeah. dude, uh, well, okay, well, screw all the rest, man. Forget what you've written. Forget <laughs> Discord. Forget Facebook. Forget your podcast, man. What's the most important is that you are the moderator of the MeWe group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, man. So you're, uh, you're, you're, you mentioned you're kind of exhausted. You've had a hell of a weekend. Yeah, um, I just got back from the Mermaid Festival. My wife is a professional mermaid. And so yesterday we had a mermaid ball where she was the head mermaid. And she had 10 other mermaids with her. And I was the mer-wrangler for the evening. So I had to take care of 11 mermaids in total, making sure that they were unmolested and you know got to the restroom when they needed to and carried them around to you know, go onto couches and back into the green room. And then this morning was the mermaid parade. And then after that was the mermaid art fair. And I just got home uh, about 40 minutes ago. Wow. Yowza. Yeah. When you said, when you said mermaid wrangler, I had an image in my head of you like with a giant net <laughs> and like chaps, you know? <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't recommend chaps when right. wrangling mermaids. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leather goods in general, probably bad to wear in the water. Pro- yeah, pro- yeah, prob- prob- yeah, probably. Right. But this is Texas. This is Texas. We wear leather everywhere, apparently. Right? <laughs> this is getting weird. Um, <laughs> anyway, so let's maybe we should talk about a little bit more about Genesis. What do you think? Okay. okay. It's fine. I mean... <laughs> What's the runtime usually? Like three or four hours? Like, oh, this will somebody, fill up a lot of that space. That. Yeah, two, three or no four doubt. hours. Yep, no doubt. <laughs> all right, Scott. So, <laughs> so, Scott, we ask this of all of our guests. Tell us a little bit about your yourself and your gaming career. I mean, obviously, we know that you wrangle mermaids, but what else do you do in the, in the gaming realm? Uh, wow. Um, I mean, it's, since Genesis came out, I actually don't even play any other games. Like, it's, that's consumed my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the only way I can produce all of that content if I just ignore everything else. Uh, but, you know, I grew up with D&D, advanced D&D, you know, second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my first uh, RPG experiences was actually Vampire the Masquerade, which, you know, may be a big shock if you know what something strange is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... And, you know, tons of board games and stuff. Mm. Was there a second part to that question? <laughs> no, that was pretty much it. So, <laughs> so this is really the first time that you've had any dealings with the industry as far as um, gaming goes, that this was the, your your jump-off point, for want of a better term. Oh, yeah, totally. I've, I've never, like, produced, like, official content. Like, I haven't even ever produced, like, uh, DM's Guild content or anything like that. Mm. Genesis just brings that out, I guess. 
<laughs> something. I don't. I, this past year and a half has been a whirlwind. <laughs> it has been. Um, well, okay. You, so you say obviously, you know that you know you're 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 living, eating, breathing, crapping Genesis at this point. Um, so you're 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 it, it, it's it's what you're doing. What is your first love of Genesis? And what we mean by that is we love to ask this of our guests. What what style of game or or game settings or themes do you just really like to get on the table the most when you play Genesis or run Genesis? Um, I'll give you one guess. I mean, it's modern horror. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and it's actually like the first game of Genesis I played was running like the very first proto version of something strange Mm -hmm. i had a a group of people that i met in this little town and um they wanted to do like a D &D night but like genesis had just come out and i was like uh what if we didn't do D &D because i got i've been really tired of fantasy Mm -hmm. i had a like a year-long 5e game that was weekly uh and had a hard time like coming up with more and more content yeah it was a seven player table Wow. And I, I just got, I got burned out. Um, so I was just like, you know what? I'm done with D&D. Genesis is a thing now. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go whole hog into Genesis. <laughs> and uh, this group was like, okay, well, if we're not doing D&D, uh, we'd like to do like a, like a Monster of the Week type game. And I was like, all right. So um, using just the CRB, the core rule book, mm-hmm. um, I didn't even actually create any other content. I just... Here's the, you guys just use the core archetypes, just whatever talents, and we're just going to let it, you know, fall out. Whatever's going to work and whatever doesn't, I'm going to learn the system same time as you, and we'll see what works and what doesn't. Very cool. Obviously, it worked for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something worked. <laughs> Now that people have a good idea of who you are, but they may not know your product. Now, I know that you've spoken about something strange just now. And we would say to everyone, you know, give us uh, your elevator pitch, basically. Tell us a little bit about uh, about something strange. Because it's a standalone setting for people who love their horror, uh, mysteries of the unknown and things that go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's one of a handful of setting books uh, rather than adventures. Um, and it's a standout product as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and one that you have clearly put a lot of work into. Oh, thank so tell us about the... Tell us a little bit about the setting. Uh, what would you say to someone who was really interested in purchasing it? Uh, so it's obviously modern horror, urban fantasy setting. Um, it should be everything that you need to do werewolves, vampires, and magicians in the modern world. That's, and that's There's the elevator pitch. Huh? <laughs> uh, there's it in two sentences. Um, but going a little deeper than that... Uh, I try to make sure that so you got all the gear you need. I do a, a few more talents um, before ready fight. We didn't really have you know some good unarmed stuff, so I actually have a few unarmed talents in there mm-hmm. that were surprisingly almost the same as what Keith had written. Uh, so that was neat. Uh, as far as the gear goes, I uh, I took care to get um, primitive weapons balanced with modern weapons. Mm-hmm. So that forced me to add in um, a new mechanic of weapon noise because really the only reason to use a bow over uh, an assault rifle is how silent it is because, Ah. right? So I I had to add that in, especially if you're shooting guns in an urban environment. Mm. Uh, Maybe maybe people, there should be a little bit of a mechanic to understand like, you know, 
people will hear that and then have a mechanic to, you know, mitigate that sound using a, I have a suppressed item quality. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And that's, I think that's really the only thing I really added as far as extra rules. I try to keep it as base and as core as possible to make picking up and using it as simple as possible. Mm. And it's been a successful strategy, but there's, 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 there's some interesting stuff. I mean, so, but you talk about a couple of unique things. Can you, can you dive in a bit deeper? Could you, could you wet our appetites maybe with a sneak peek of something very specific in this product that is, is so unique. You won't see it anywhere else on the foundry. So I think my, my brilliant thing, the, my eureka moment in creating something strange was the, um, the supernatural talents. So it's a tier one talent to be a werewolf. It's a tier one talent to be a vampire. And I did this for a really specific reason because I had a player who had only built his character with the core rulebook archetypes. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, well, okay, how would we bring in, how would we, you know, have our players be our characters be werewolves and vampires? I was like, well, after character creation, the really only way to do that would be like to make a talent. So, well, that makes total sense because you're going to start out as yourself, right? As your your core archetype, and then you become this thing later on. It's very interesting you bring that up. I will say I, I read that, and I, I had a I, I had I kind of had a forehead slap moment when I did it. Mm. One of the things I've been like. I have like seven back burners. This is on the eighth back burner um, <laughs> um, is a Victorian horror setting uh, called uh, Gaslight and Moonlight. And, uh, and I'll be probably in full transparency. I watched the rather fun, cheesy and terrible uh, good, bad movie Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And that was the vibe I was going for. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I was like, okay, well, man, so you can have vampires or half vampires or werewolves or 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 constructed Frankenstein-y monsters. And and I went the archetype route, you know, in, in that initial design work. And then it, but then you you bring up the point and, and it was one of those foreheads level. It's like, well, yeah, okay, half this stuff, especially vampirism and werewolfism. I mean, or, or excuse me, vampirism and lycanthropy. Um, um, you know, yeah, you can, you can catch this, right? You can get bitten. So if you're an experienced character, how do you represent that? You certainly can't do it with an archetype. So yeah, that was a good forehead slap moment for me. Yeah. Brilliantly done, sir. Yeah. Everyone seems to have the same initial thought when they want to do a vampire werewolf or something like that. And it's like, Oh, just make an archetype to do it. So, Mm -hmm. and then I was, you know, do the talent. Everyone's like, Oh my God, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and what's great about it is it, it's infinitely malleable because you know if uh, you well in my futuristic setting where we have space vampires they have you know the older you get the more powerful abilities you get and the cooler things you can do well you can just represent that with ever improving talents yep, you know and that's that's exactly what I do I've got a whole exactly. slew of like pseudo talent trees right there's like base and improved versions of all of those things but you have to have the vampire talent first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, great stuff, man. Great stuff. Thank you. Very good. So, Scott, what makes something strange different from other settings that we've seen on the Genesis Foundry? Oh, boy. Uh, that would assume I'm really familiar with all the other ones, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm outing myself here. No, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of them, uh, not, but not all of them. Um, my brilliant eye for layout design. <laughs> It's all about self-promotion, I guess. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, well, I think one of the, one of the things I, I touched on there is is um, keeping it as close to the rules as written as possible. Like mm. I don't, I don't mod, I modify very little. Yeah. On purpose, because mm. I yeah. think that you should be able to just take it, and you don't have to like. Okay, well, magic works this way. I read in the core rule book, but now it works like this way in this setting, and so I got to use a different magic. Mm. And that's fine. You can do that, and it, it's perfectly valid for a lot of settings to do that. But I didn't want to mess around with it. Mm. I already had players that have, were using the core rulebook magic, so I didn't want to like invent new magic rules for them to have to figure out. Yep. Yeah. Because it certainly increases the accessibility for other players who may not have experienced anything else other than the you know they've gone to to the store and, and picked up the core rules. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, that's a that's a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott. One of the things that also you have become very well known for in the Genesis RPG community is, you know, for for some time now, uh, the the plethora of game aids um, to help new and existing GMs and players. And with that, you know, you 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 kind of showed us all that you definitely have an eye for layout, especially and and a skill with InDesign. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that skill set and where that stems from? Yeah, sure. Um, so my first job right out of high school was as a web designer. Ah. And this was in 1997. Um, so at the time, I think we were on Adobe Photoshop version 3. <laughs> and uh, so I, I got really familiar with those Adobe tools at the time. Mm-hmm. And totally paid full price for them, of course. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and so basically, I've just been like learning the new versions as they come out over the last... Years, mm-hmm. and and yeah, uh, and, but when I first started doing the Genesis stuff, I wasn't super great at InDesign, but I was super good at other Adobe products mm-hmm. like Photoshop and Illustrator. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking at all the, you know, Genesis was out, and there was like some some holes for people like needed things, um, and I was like, well, I, I think I can do this. Let me let me pop up my copy of InDesign that I just randomly happened to have for no reason, and let me just try and lay some stuff out. And I think one of the first things I did was actually uh, the the sci-fi weapons, mm-hmm. GM Huzzies, yep. uh, sci-fi weapon thing. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. One, yeah that's right. Wait, no, uh, that was the second one. The first one I did was uh, a character sheet. I did the character sheet first, um, mainly because I saw the official sheet we got uh, was heavily JPEGed, mm. uh, the which is a standard for some reason when they when they post some stuff up f fifty when they post stuff up it's it's super reduced in the file size, mm. so we get uh, a lot uh, more um, compressed images in those in those uh, PDFs. So I was like, well, I can do way better vector images than those. <laughs> so I was definitely really good at, at Illustrator. So I was able to do that, and I was like, well, okay, well, I need I need InDesign to lay this out properly. Uh, so I did all that, and my first versions were done incorrectly. Just way wrong. Uh, and over the last year or so, I've gotten way better at it. Mm. Is that the so that would have been the vectorized character sheet that I believe GM Caitlin printed yes, up about that, the, the size the of the very it. same. Yeah, wow. The giant picture, yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious when she did that. That was good. <laughs> I showed that I showed that to my wife and I was like, look, there's people in Australia just printed out my character <laughs> sheet. Like, gigantic. What is happening? Everything's bigger in Australia, right? <laughs> <laughs> Including your character sheets. Uh, I was funny. big as in Texas. <laughs> yeah. 
It's uh, it's funny when she had to actually use that um, to when she forgot her character sheet a number of times. Uh, <laughs> she had to refer back to that. Hilarious. But anyway, um, so before the Foundry, there were, there was a lot of, of fan generated content, as we know. Uh, it was out in the wild, and and something strange was was one of those products which was was out there. Uh, it's been around for a while, and uh, you know, you you obviously did a lot of beta testing using that sort of format. So, with the advent of the Foundry, um, it enabled you to make uh, make that into something uh, amazingly spectacular. Uh, so, what was some of the challenges associated with this process, including taking it from a readily accessible format to a fully purchasable setting? So, yeah, so it's um, it's been play tested over the past year or so and when i needed this document for my players i just put everything in there from the core rulebook into it so they wouldn't have to refer to refer to the core rulebook for any other other talents or gear or any of this other stuff i just dumped it all in this one thing printed it out and handed it to them mm. um so so the versions on that were previous you know had all this stuff that I absolutely could not include with a Foundry version. Mm. So I had to pull a lot of content out there and then create the more unique gaps of the things that were now missing. Because mm. the things I had to take out were like uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk and Tyranoth Talents. Right. Um, and that forced me in a really good way to come up with my own unique things that definitely need to be in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, you know, those kinds of limitations that let us be more creative. Mm. And it's, it's clear that that's been a make you, I mean, when, so you take that and combine it with the previous experience you've had that led to obviously this product. Yeah. Um, in its full fledged glory. Now, another interesting thing about this, and I, I'd love to get into this discussion briefly if we could, because, you, me, Huli, we kind of share an, an opinion. Um, we, we on this show talk a lot about artwork um, since we, we get a lot of feedback from listeners and people who are, are, are frankly intimidated um, by submitting to the Foundry. Uh, many feel that they may not be able to do their settings or products justice because they lack a budget for artwork. It, it can be terribly expensive. Now, where I think we're all in agreement is that you, you, and, and you also are a big believer that art isn't always necessary to make a product look great and to make it pop. This is also something we talked about with uh, Darren West when we had him on to talk about Hadris Shard. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this and advice? So, art is great. It helps uh, inspire as you read something. There's a reason that you know RPG products typically have the art. Uh, it really just makes it a more uh, pleasing product to to read through. Um, but if you're an indie publisher and you're just trying to get a basic idea out there, you don't absolutely need the art. Get your get your content to stand on its own first. The rest should fall into place. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, one thing that that a lot of people may struggle with even outside of that is like the layout and design of it. Mm -hmm. um, now I have a really, I did a unique design for something strange 
And that was all just, you know, my own graphic skills. And I understand, you know, most people are not going to have that. And so the, the foundry was able to give us these uh, templates of just the core rulebook styling, which is fine. It's totally fine. And you should just get your content in that format and just make it work on its own. And if there's something you think that you definitely need to have a picture of, then describe the thing as best you can. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, this is a, a writing project. Write. Mm-hmm. Create. Yeah. But if, if you got the budget for art, go for it. But yeah. the, <laughs> the tactic I did, because the, the latest version of Something Strange does have artwork in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I was able to do is after I had sold so many copies... I used that money in my drive-through RPG account mm. to purchase licensable stock art from artists on drive-through. Mm. And a lot of the pieces I got, they were only like four bucks a piece. <laughs> yep. So, and just toss them in there. You know, it gives it a little more visual, breaks it up visually, gives a little more inspiration when you're reading certain things. Mm. It, it definitely makes it better, but I don't think that it was poor with the lack of it it wasn't um and we we, we chatted i think last episode about mm. about that decision where you and, and keith and a few others have said yeah we're gonna we're gonna reinvest in art which is is just a brilliant decision but the layout was decent on its own but even then you i think your point is incredibly well taken and i think this is probably such a sage nugget i think every listener should understand we like okay Earlier in this episode, Scott, we, we we were talking about some of the newer products that came out on the Foundry just in the past couple of weeks, mm-hmm. um, and one of them we we weren't too impressed with. It was a it was a, a new setting, a fantasy setting called the Gods of New Braemar, um, and it it was one of those things that just didn't it it was really if I had to describe it in a word, it would be a shrug. Okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now it had no art and virtually no layout. Okay, last episode. We talked about um, a setting from Peter Holland called Fame Factor, which was another fantasy setting. But it had something unique. It really popped. It had virtually no art and literally no layout. But it was still a decent product that I would recommend to someone. Because, again, the way in which it was written, the the content stood on its own. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Scott, from your perspective, uh, what sort of nugget of advice, I guess, would would you provide to anyone wanting to submit to the Foundry? Uh, the first thing to do is to write, 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 write. <laughs> like, you've got to just keep writing and make a bunch of garbage. Mm. Like, what is it, Jake the dog? The the first step to being sort of good at something is being bad at something. I, yeah. I know I did the quote wrong, but the the essence of it is there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you, you've just got to you got to start. You got to be bad at something before you can be good at it. Mm. So you just have to keep writing, and you have to keep testing your ideas. Mm. Yep. And the other part of that is to make something for yourself. Make the thing that you want to be made. Mm. Don't make something you think is going to sell well mm. because it's going to it's not going to be as good as the thing that you really like to make. Mm. And that that's something that I think that echoes across from everyone that we've we've spoken to thus far on the forge is that do something that you're passionate about because if you're not it's going to show. Um and clearly this uh, the product that you've produced is something that you are passionate about. 
And that's the that's one of the the core reasons why it's as good as it is. Yeah, because uh, you know, as I'm writing it, I'm excited to write. Mm. Right? If I if I'm like if someone's like, oh hey Scott, we really need you to make a uh, an, a yet another fantasy setting. And I was like, oh god, I do not want to do that. <laughs> but uh, this this I, this I'm, I super <laughs> love doing. Absolutely. Well, well, okay. So with that passion of the things that you super love doing what's next for you and the foundry what 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 can uh, what can fans of your work expect to find in the uh, in the months to come from you on the foundry in the months okay we'll keep it to the months <laughs> <laughs> or you can go weeks i'm fine we'll keep, we'll keep it less than three months uh <laughs> so the two things i hope to get out very next I have a um, a magic guide. Cool. And I have uh, an adventure for something strange. Nice. Um, I, I was hoping to get my something strange adventure finished first, but I made a a tactical decision that made it take longer. I was going to do a really short, like two hour, three hour playable version, and then. I decided, no, I want it to be way longer than that. So I'm having to rewrite everything and write a whole much more content. Mm. So I'm like describing almost every single NPC in this town. And there's like multiple locations. I did a 3D rendering of the town Mm. that I'm going to be including. And uh, yeah. That sounds cool. (laughs) Sounds very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's taking longer than I thought. Um, (laughs) And in between writing on that, I started doing this magic guide as, I, as people were asking more and more questions about magic mm. and wanting a guide for new players on, you know, how to do spell customizations yep. and and stuff like that. So I, I have uh, created this, um, it's basically a spell book, but I have uh, some other parts where it gives like some guidance on some clarifications of, of magic rules. And the spell book portion is basically I do a... Uh, a version of almost every spell possible mm-hmm. uh, and a uh, flavoring, narrative flavoring for every single one of them. Nice. So that's been taking a minute, um, <laughs> but that should be done soon. That sounds good. Oh, that sounds great. And would also help solve a huge problem that some players have with magic. And, and until you get comfortable with the mechanics, that the idea of it being so open-ended, mm. it leads to a little bit of... Uh, analysis paralysis sometimes exactly so yeah. so i hope that you know new players can just grab this and go oh i just want to do this uh this little spell here it seems to have the effect i want so and they can just cast it that sounds, and it has the difficulty right there and all the rules to go with it yeah that sounds very <laughs> exciting because i know that every time that we raise magic as an issue uh on uh, on our facebook feed it just blows up and i know the same thing for uh, on the genesis um uh the, uh, the genesis community group as well that clearly mm-hmm. people are finding that uh, a, a little bit difficult to get their head around. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that'll be that'll be well appreciated. I think in the community. So, um, yeah, good choice. Thank you. Excellent. Good on you. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, man. Uh, it's been really a fun insight and talk and walk through your head. 
Um, and for those of you who are, are listening, of course, um, if you're if you're not already listening to uh, Don't Despair, our uh, S- uh, Scott and others podcast, our, our sister podcast on the D20 Radio Network, you need to be. Um, and I, all of you, we know we know you listeners are you know liking, of course, uh, the Forge Podcast Facebook page and have probably joined the D20 Radio uh uh, group as well on Facebook, but you need to join the Genesis RPG community as well, mm. um, as as the, really the premier place for very focused, um, content driven uh, Genesis specific discussion mm. on social media. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, we tried to you know we had this Genesis R- RPG community umbrella. So however you want to engage with it on whatever your preferred platform is is all run by the same people. Absolutely. It's very, very good. Yes. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being with us and oh, uh, for, for, sharing, for sharing so much about something strange. And uh, there is a lot to be taken from this setting. So we appreciate it. Thank you. I know I love everybody's work who basically comes on to uh, uh, onto our show, but uh, especially under Breaking the Mold because they're just – I've said this in the past. I love people who are just creative, uh, but um, Scott's just up there with um, – you know, he's – He's he's not quite Sterling Hershey as far as my fanboyism goes, but um, you know I see, <laughs> he he's getting there just with uh, the the sheer skill that that guy has uh, for uh, for getting uh, producing what he's done over the last you know it's really only been as he said during the interview it's only been about eighteen months since um, yeah. he's picked up uh, the Genesis Core rules uh, and started to to develop that. And I think that that's yeah. kind of, it, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of some of the stuff that I did right at the start when I was trying to understand how to, uh, to run Star Wars. And I was listening to the Order 66 and I was generating some, uh, some vehicle um, uh, sheets and, and action sheets just so that I could learn the rules and then give those to my players as well. So, um, so yeah, it sort of reminds me of that. And I, yeah, if um, if he can get pushed up the, the the hierarchy more, great. I'm more than happy to do that. But uh, <laughs> I know it's really really good. So love it, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, uh, it was it was really good talking to him. Um, and and uh, what he's done for the community is 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 great. And I am even more excited that I know he's going to be coming to Gamer Nation Con mm, in the spring. Indeed. But we'll be talking about that in future episodes. Absolutely. All right. So, but we've got some questions, I think, Chris, from some of our listeners. Should we get onto that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 really should. Right. And we're going to call that segment as we always do under the hammer. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role playing game as it impacts both rules and content creation and, of course, play. And for this episode, we've got a lot of questions, a few more than normal, um, which uh, basically it's amazing. So thank you to everyone who has submitted via (laughs) email and Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and YouTube. And what was the other one that Scott mentioned before? Oh, yeah, Discord. (laughs) Maybe we should get into that as well. But he mentioned another one. (laughs) Um, He was talking about what, MeWe? MeWe, that's whatever it's called. Um, So, uh, but anyway, we can only um, pick three to discuss tonight. So, Chris, would you like to read our first question? 
<laughs> Absolutely. Comes in from Facebook from Kate Saunders, who says this. How do you handle a situation where traditionally all the players would be making individual checks? For example, if the players are trying to scale a cliff, would they all individually roll athletics? Would it be a group roll? Stealth also fits into this category. Even perception. It's a good question and probably something that we touched base on in the last episode when we talked about stealth. Um, and I know that we've talked about it during this episode as well when, when we were looking at uh, resilience. Um, it, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this uh, only today where the system is really designed for one role resolution. So when we start talking group checks, and you may have a different opinion, Chris, but that when we're talking um, group checks, we're talking things like cool or vigilance checks where everybody at the table is basically making that check, uh, as well as uh, strain recovery at the end of a round, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of a turn, um, uh, an encounter. You, there are special rules associated with each of those. So for recovering resilience, it is for every success. And I know that there are arguments out there that you should be able to use uh, the, um, your advantages for um, getting back straight as well. But as by the, by the letter of the law, that's not how it works, that it's by successes only. But that's a specific set of rules for that. When it comes to um, vigilance and cool checks, the advantages can only be used um, for uh, for uh, for tie breaking, um, and it specifically says for a triumph that you get a uh, an additional maneuver at the start of the round. There's specific rules for talking about group checks, which kind of to me says that the rules are designed in such a way that it's designed for everybody to work out what they want to do as a group, and then make that that role. So, when it comes to the question that uh, that Kate is asking, um, I think that under under most circumstances, individual checks for things like perception, for things like stealth, roll it into the one check. If you have things, for example, if you've if you're in a fantasy setting, and you have someone who, or you have a group of people, um, one of whom's wearing chainmail, the other one's wearing plate mail that both of those have two and one uh, setback die uh, that they that should really be taken into consideration if you're making a stealth check, for example. So if you've got everybody at the table doing that, they're obviously talking about what they're going to do, and so suddenly you have uh, the check that is going to have those three setback die. But if you've got a, a rogue or a thief that may know some tricks on how to dampen that, chances are that they've got knack for it so that they can remove two of those setback die. Uh, and then you're just making one check. Now, if you've got um, multiple people who have good in stealth or maybe somebody's got a, uh, a higher agility check, they can be making combined checks, um, uh, you know, a skilled assist. Or in certain circumstances, it may be a case that uh, they get boost die because they're all trying to, you know, one's trying to uh, look out for what's going to happen next. 
Um, but then, depending on how many people you're trying to sneak past, you could then be looking at adding setback dice for larger groups to be um, be sneaking past these guards. So um, you've uh, you're combining the entire scenario, but you're talking about it first with the players, uh, and they're talking amongst themselves on how they're going to do that. And then go from there. Now, the other thing as well, which is something that isn't covered by Genesis, but is definitely covered under Star Wars, is that they talk about how to use successes and how to use advantages per skill. Now, one of the things that they use specifically for stealth, um, which you can use for anything really as as a basis, is that for each success above the first, you allow somebody else to do the same thing. So if you've got, um, uh, we'll use her example that uh, that the, she's used athletics. So if you were making a trip across a fast flowing river that you need to needed to get everybody to make athletics checks, you might be saying, okay, set the difficulty. You've set up the group check. And for the first time, the first person who's leading the group, they get across. And then for every single um, additional strength check that them, uh, their success that they make, they get another person across. Now, that may leave some people across the other side. That's when a second check falls into play. So that's my thoughts. Chris? Mm. I think you're making it way too complicated. <laughs> okay. I got a few simple rules when it comes to group checks. Sure. It has to do with consequences. To put it another way, if one player, let's say they're going through a scenario. I don't care if it's stealth. I don't care if it's perception. I don't care if it's athletics or resilience to cross a river or scale a mountain. Hmm. If one player fails and the entire party will suffer the consequences. Mm Mm-hmm. You, they should not be making individual checks. It's a waste. Make it a group check. Yep. Uh, what? What? Why not? Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. If the entire party is going to suffer the consequences, stealth is and perception are probably the two most egregious examples here. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one person fails fails their stealth roll, the whole party ends up getting into a fight. Well, screw it. Just made, just make it a group check. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rules for that are very clearly laid out in the book. Yep. Now, the bold-faced exceptions to this are when you've got scenarios where and, – and this could happen for stealth, okay? Um, where it, it, the negative consequences are only going to apply to the PCs who failed and you have a way to get the other PCs, whether the consequences are not going to apply to them, then do that. But the other thing, too, is <clears throat> you have to ask yourself – well, okay, and this gets a bit deeper into game theory of this system. Because, mm. Huli, we've said before, one of the things here is try and have these people make as few checks as possible. Absolutely. Right? Yep, definitely. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to upscale the question even more, Kate. Do they need to be making a check? Mm. Okay, you need to ask yourself that. Perception... Um, athletics, do, do, they, do they really need to be making a check? Is there a consequence if they fail? Is it going to impact the story? Okay. Hmm. And if the answer is yes, okay, then some things like stealth perception makes total sense. If we're talking about athletics to scale a cliff, 
at that point, if you're going to go in and say this is necessary and a check needs to be made, make it a larger encounter and turn it into a skill challenge. Mm. That's my number two rule. So number two rules for me when it comes to group skill checks. One, consequences. If the whole group is going to suffer the consequences for one person failing, make it a group check. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as Huli said, of course, if some, it, but that's the thing. If you're going to do a group check, and I and one member has talents that reduce, uh, you know, like they have they have knack for it. Well, guess what? That applies to the check. Congratulations. Mm. Um, don't be afraid to make a difficulty more difficult. Adding one difficulty uh, for increasing it by plus one for a group check. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to do that. And then my second rule is consider whether this needs to be a check at all yep. or whether it needs to be a skill challenge. Mm. That's that's it. Good advice. I think that answers the question. Hopefully it does for you, Kate. So um, our next question comes from Whiskey Hangover, which is via Reddit. Yay! Another place that we're getting questions from. Um, <laughs> so uh, Whiskey Hangover asks, can you guys share your thoughts on the Pierce item quality. It just seems so pointless when even the weakest enemies have a soak of two. There doesn't seem to be any difference between Pierce and just adding plus one to the base damage. What's the point? Great question. Um, this is one I puzzled over for a little while. Mm. Uh, but honestly, Huli, I think we have some thoughts on this, yes? Absolutely. Now, honestly, great question, Whiskey Hangover. Uh, love the name, by the way. Uh, and one that took a little bit of digging to get a definitive answer to, because realistically, there isn't really a reason, but there kind of is. I know that sounds very vague. Uh, but the first place we have to look is on page 200 of the core rulebook under create an item. Now, it states, with Pierce, just keep in mind that until you get to ratings of five or higher, you can think of your Pierce rating as the equivalent of adding damage to checks. Pierce has a diminishing returns after the value exceeds uh, the average soak value, so price weapons accordingly. Now, what does that actually uh, mean? What is it saying? It's basically saying that adding adding weapon damage is actually more powerful than Pierce. Pierce quality is potent for sure, but with, say, Pierce 3 versus soak 2, that extra one point, or the difference between the two, it's being lost. It, It doesn't go anywhere. If it was damage, however, that extra one point would be converted to wounds, thus being the the more powerful option. Yes, and it's it's about balance and playability. Ultimately, hmm. uh, you know, placing higher damage values on things can really start to annoy your players. That's mm-hmm. another thing to consider. <laughs> yeah. um, the the Pierce quality allows you to keep a, a weapon frightening, hmm. uh, keep it within the realm of other weapons. And and not punish characters with uh, uh, a low soak value, mm. um, you know. And, and after all, not everyone's going to have a high brawn uh, mm. and, and several ranks in the tough and talent. <laughs> uh, not everyone's going to play that brawny character that we talked about in our last episode. Exactly right. Um, but you know that that distinction between pierce and increased damage. I think it's also worth noting a, a, a concrete way. It's it's a minor way, but a concrete way to see that in the system mm. is uh, through explosives, grenades, and blast. Okay. Mm. Um, which is a great example where where if uh, if you have an explosive or or any any weapon with the blast quality, but mm. it also has pierce, that pierce does not carry over mm. to to the blast if it activates. Yep. Okay, yeah. but an increased damage typically does because that does inform the blast number. Mm. So 
you know, just one one minor way to think about that. But uh, I mean, yeah, that it, it's a minor distinction, but it, it it is there. Yeah, exactly. Now, from a design perspective, weapons with pierce uh, are going to provide a, a more even spread of damage, rather than only damaging characters with the low soak, as we mentioned before. Uh, it also allows for your, your NPCs to to be more effective to everyone in the party, rather than just the 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 people who, with that low soak which is important for, for balancing your encounter designs. Uh, the other thing, as you alluded to, Chris, um, is the imagery that a weapon with a high pierce uh, quality represents. Uh, a deadly weapon able to ignore armor and deliver its damage straight to the target, uh, it, it's one that's going to strike fear into, into your players or anyone. Um, so effectively, pierce is, is just as much about the theme of the weapon as it is the mechanics behind it. However, if you really want to get frightening with, uh, you know, jagged edges and, and whirling buzzsaws and things like that, uh, Pierce is probably not what you're looking for anyway. Uh, that's the realm of Vicious, which is going to add to the uh, the critical hit ratings uh, that you're rolling uh, when you make uh, a critical hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, back to the original question, mm. it really is a subtle distinction, yeah. um, which, which I hope we've pointed out. Mm. Um, and you know, as, as, as even then we've gotten clarification on there, there's a bit of diminishing returns when you start getting above Pierce five. Yeah. Um, and on that point, as a side note, I have to close by saying this. Mm. If you think something should have Pierce of 10 or more, then you should just forget that altogether. And of course, look at breach. Yep. But honestly, if you're looking at a weapon with a Pierce of five or more or more than five, <laughs> um, why you should probably be in the realm of breach anyway, just yeah. for, for those aspiring designers out there. Exactly so, right. Good cool. question. Well, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah. All right. So we got a last question coming in from mm-hmm. Chris Mordica mm. uh, via Facebook. Grappling. <laughs> he, says, he says, I understand that grappling is rolled into the advantage slash threat system, but how does one character stop another character from moving past it down a corridor? Um, as I understand the game system, the moving character would engage the blocker and then be able to spend a maneuver disengaging. It's an interesting question. <laughs> now, there are two talents which are from uh, Realms of Terranoth which kind of touch base on this, on, on how we should be looking at it. Um, but uh, which are uh, grappling, uh, or grapple, I think it's called. Uh, and the other one is, is it nimble? I think it's the other one, or something like that. I think so. Um, or nimble, maybe from uh, from Shadow of the Beanstalk as well. Uh, and how those two interact, but basically the uh, the nimble allows you to move out of hand to hand without it actually costing you a maneuver, uh, and grapple allows you to uh, cause the, the the person who's moving uh, to take two maneuvers as opposed to one. So how do you do that without that talent? Because it's it's obviously very very specific to realms of Terranoth. Mm-hmm. The easy answer is you bring it into your goddamn game <laughs> because it's a great talent if that's what your character is really good at. Um, yeah. But uh, otherwise, um, you do need to house rule it a little bit. Uh, and that can be things like um, if you're, rather than making a brawn attack, you could perhaps try to grapple someone. Um, 
And uh, that's going to be things like, you know, uh, you have knockdown as an ability that you automatically get with any sort of uh, a brawling attack. Exactly. Um, so, you know, use that. Say, uh, instead of a knockdown, I'm going to hold them in place. Um, and so that means that they might need an additional maneuver to get out if you don't, if you don't have the grappling, um, the, the grapple talent. Um, or it might take and it might take an action to get past someone. Again, the rules aren't going to be able to cover everything. There's only so many pages that they can fit into these books, and there does need to be a certain level of common sense applied when you're looking at these sorts of rules. So if you've got a 5 by 5 corridor, and you've got a big burly orc who's standing in the middle of the corridor and preventing you from uh, going past, it's a barrier. You're going to have to make some sort of check to get through that barrier. Uh, and that may be uh, a some sort of uh, stealth check. It might be a resilience check if you're trying to um, you know, force him forward. Um, it may be any number of checks to be able to do, but that's going to take you an action to do. Now, that doesn't yes. mean that you're not going to be able to get past because you've still got, technically, two manoeuvres that you can play around with if you're willing to spend the strain. So, you know, that's it's not the end of the world, but you do have to apply some common sense. Yeah. Your, your thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, everything you said is absolutely correct. Um, grappling has always been an interesting concept in the narrative dice system. I don't think it's ever been fully fleshed out really well. Mm. Um, and quite frankly, I don't know that I've ever really wanted it to. Um, th- this is not a, a tactical system. We talk when we talk about you know, well, you know, how do I stop him if he's if he's going to engage with me and then have to disengage? And I hate the disengagement rules anyway. Um, uh, I, I dislike those in the system. They, they don't they're they're not very cinematic to me. No. Um, I think the key thing that Huli said was keep in mind that the brawl skill is not just used to deal damage. It is also the de facto skill used for any type of grappling or, or maneuver like that. Um, there is nothing rules is intended uh, from, from stopping a PC from saying, look, I, I want to, you know, when this guy enters my space, I want to attack him or I, mm. I want to get up there. I, I want to, I want to use brawl on him, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not trying to hit him. I'm trying to, I'm trying to immobilize him. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and put that condition on him for a round. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're successful, okay, then you've done it. Mm. And you know what, if you're going to do that, it's not even an attack at that point. It's, it's honest to God. It, it, I mean, we, I mean, this is raw. It's an opposed check. Yeah. Okay. You've spent your action to initiate that grapple, make the brawl check, and it's opposed by that person's brawl themselves or their coordination. Okay, mm. another great way to bring coordination, which is an often <laughs> underused skill into the game. Yep. Um, you know, as as again as a as a as a defensive skill. Mm. Um, and that's assuming you're the person trying to do the block. If you're the person trying to run the block, <laughs> trying to get past that orc standing yep. in the middle of the five foot hallway, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, what a great opportunity for an opposed check. It's like, you know, I'm going to race past him, a GM. Ooh, okay. Well, as a part of that maneuver, I need you to give me an opposed coordination check or vigilance, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, opposed by their brawl. Uh, and, you know, those are those are some really great suggestions to, to do it with. And honestly, you got to treat it, uh, you know, it, w- with success in either area, especially if you're trying to hold somebody down. Don't make it permanent. Mm. You know, treat treat it like you know. Basically, it's it's you know what they're 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 immobilized for a round. Okay, you've grappled them. They're immobilized for a round. Mm. On their round, maybe they get a chance to break free. 
Okay, mm-hmm. they can make an opposed check on their turn, mm-hmm. and then they've and if they're successful, they've got to maneuver to get the heck away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and run like the wind. Um, failing that, when it comes back around to your turn again, you know this grapple's still ongoing. If you want to keep the immobilization effect, make another opposed check. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, those are the, those are the ways I've commonly dealt with it when players have asked, and it's always seemed to work really well. Uh, opposed checks are kind of the hidden gem of the system. Yeah. They can solve almost any problem you really want to do that the rules don't directly explain. Absolutely. I mean, to to channel Jay Little here for a bit, um, what we have is a scenario here that, just to go back to what you said, Chris, is that you've got a player who said that they want to do something. The GM says, yes, you can do that. But if you fail, this is what's going to happen. If you succeed, this is what's going to happen. You then set the difficulty of that. You agree in a social, uh, to the social contract of that's what the the difficulty is that you're agreeing to. You're agreeing to what the expectations of that check are going to be. And I know I keep going back to the expectations, but that's what this, uh, for player satisfaction and GM satisfaction, that is so important that, You've got that agreement. You then make the check. If you succeed, you abide by that condition, uh, by that social uh, interaction that you've had, that contract, uh, and then that happens on the table. But if you fail, the player knows what's going to happen when the fail happens. So that's what happens. Move on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, through all this, Huli, we've forgotten probably the best suggestion that we can give for this entire situation. Mm-hmm. Go to the foundry and purchase Ready Fight by yes. Keith Kappel. <laughs> because Very that true. experienced developer has written some pretty uh, freaking phenomenal <laughs> rules for this kind of situation. And they're great. And you can just use them. That's right. Exactly right. So, uh, so yeah, just go straight to the foundry uh, and, uh, and download that product. And I've um, been told that... that Keith is very, very close as of today. Now... When people are listening to it, it may have tipped over, but he is so close to going over into Electrum, and we've got some news about that, which we'll discuss in future episodes about yeah. uh, uh, about products that go over into that Electrum category. So, uh, but we'll talk about that at a later stage. <laughs> But um, Chris Monica, hopefully that has answered your question with regards to grappling. Thank you very much for asking it. So that brings us uh, to the end of our show. Uh, If you have any questions uh, like these uh, fellow listeners have had uh, that you'd like to ask us um, and have us answer about uh, developing your own content for Genesis, being a GM or player, or general questions about the rules themselves, you can send us an email to ForgeGenesis at d20radio.com or you can post your questions to either Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, probably Discord, um, (laughs) and definitely Reddit uh, by searching ForgeGenesis. And of course, if you're lucky, you might get us to read the questions here on the show. Uh, And also be sure to join the ever larger group of uh, discussions that go on at the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like as well, okay, uh, for uh, Facebook. Um, uh, and, of course, uh, reviews um, are extremely important. So drop us a review on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes. Um, and you can also visit us on our website, ForgeGenesis.com, and listen to all of our episodes on YouTube. And if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, 
even if you never plan to listen to these episodes on YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel because if we can just get 100 subscribers on YouTube, I know it's a weird thing to listen to podcasts <laughs> on YouTube, but if we can get 100 subscribers on YouTube, um, we can get a short link, and that really helps us. And we've managed to get there, just as a side Are note. We there? We're there. Are we there? <laughs> we're there. So- oh, my gosh, we're there. That's so great. <laughs> so they can, yeah. So if you just um, search for Forge uh, Genesis, you will definitely be able to find us on YouTube, which is great. And look, more and more people are listening to uh, to episodes on on YouTube, and don't think that we're just going to have our uh, our episodes listed on YouTube and that's it. Uh, my intention is to do some uh, like uh, basically Genesis one hundred and one uh, on on YouTube at a later stage as well. I'm just uh, learning the skills. At the moment, for uh, for editing on uh, of video content. So, if uh, if you're really interested in that sort of stuff, you know, look out in the uh, in the next few. Uh, I'm going to say, like Scott did, up to three months. <laughs> so it depends on how we're going to go. Um, but yeah, look, certainly um, uh, be sure to tune in to our next episode, uh, where our topic for the furnace is going to be a fascinating one, to say the least, as we talk. To our special guest, Katrina Lee, or as some of you know her, Katrina Ostrander, formerly of FFG. That's right. Um, I'm very thrilled by this to- this topic. Um, Katrina, who's been a guest of honor uh, at Gamer Nation Con in years past, has agreed to come onto the show and talk to us about a topic that we very briefly touched on actually tonight with Scott Zumwalt. Mm. Um, and that topic is layout and design specifically. Mm. Um, each of the adventures and settings that make their way to the Foundry have to be created to comply with the format that FFG has posted to the Foundry. Um, but beyond that, because this is a digital and not a print medium, there is a tremendous amount of unconsidered things that you can do to really amp up your product, uh, make it unique, and also eminently more readable and consumable to the readers out there and the gamers out there. And so considering all that, Cat uh, has agreed to take a deep dive into this topic to help us and to help you get a much better appreciation of what is required and what it can go beyond to make your product that much better. Mm. But all that is next time. Indeed, I cannot wait. Uh, Katrina is absolutely amazing to listen to. Uh, her website um, I use, I've certainly got it um, bookmarked because she's got some amazing stuff on there and I'm sure we'll talk about that during the episode as well well that's a wrap for us thank you for listening and we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game I'm GM Hooley may your triumphs be many and your despairs be few and I'm GM Chris wishing you peace love and good gaming thanks again for joining us and remember the Forge podcast helping you hone your gaming edge the Forge at Genesis Podcast is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis Role Playing Game, Genesis Logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.